Hey everybody, today Rado talks through episode 76 of the podcast and welcome back once more. Like last month, they seem to be coming in way, way late here. Not quite sure why this keeps happening. I usually try to get it out in the first week of the month, but better late than never. Nothing much new to report. We are just going to be getting right to it, folks. A whole bunch of questions. First, a bunch of game-related stuff that I will talk. Uh, tackle. Then Jen will join for a few game questions as well. And then for the second half of the show, we'll get into the personal Q&A stuff. Okay, um, no more preamble. Let's get right to it right after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okie dokie, let's go, let's go, let's go, starting with Gerard, who wanted to follow up on a conversation from last month to do with Kickstarter. Backing a game on Kickstarter is an investment, says Gerard. Things you see behind closed doors, or no, things that I see, I, Rado, see behind closed doors can happen anytime. And we, Gerard and the audience, just don't see it, since the game is already at retail. Thoughts? I don't know, Gerard. Um, it is an investment, sure. Yeah, I, I guess my main thought is please don't back stuff on Kickstarter if you can't afford to lose that money. Um, I, I, it's, it's very, very rare, of course, that games that successfully fund don't ultimately end up in the hands of the backers. But still, this is not a retail transaction. It's, it gives you all kinds of warnings. I just... What did I back the other day? I backed the new expansion for Edge of Darkness. And, I mean, it just it drowns you in warning, saying, this is not a purchase. You are making a speculative investment, and you have to know that going in. And if you're not comfortable with that, that occasionally... And, you know, and Jen and I, we've had uh, a couple of things never show up. Uh, the most, uh, the biggest one was... Uh, Jen was very disappointed. She backed a really fancy, super special, stretchy dog leash that never arrived. And... We've just moved on with our lives, and that was, I don't know, 20 or 30 bucks that we'll never see back. Not as bad as like two or 300 bucks, but again, I think the vast lion's share of crowdfunded board games do ultimately arrive, sometimes very late, sometimes with some problems along the way. But I don't know, what is it? 95%? Probably even higher of certainly all of the... Uh, of all the ones that I cover, anyway, I should say, I imagine there's probably all kinds of little ones that nobody ever hears of that maybe somehow get 500 bucks and they hit their target and maybe... I, I don't know. I don't really follow the stuff too terribly much. But if somebody wants to have a successful run at being a board game publisher, they are very incentivized to ensure they will ultimately get that game into hands. And I don't think anybody sets out to say, oh... I just want to come up with a clever plan to steal a few thousand bucks from people and then disappear into the ether. I don't think anybody uh, making a board game sets out with bad intentions because there's a lot better ways to defraud people. But yeah, my thoughts are, please, treat it like what it is. A speculative investment that will likely, but not guaranteed, result in a game in your hands at some point within the, a couple years later. 
Um, and yeah, and and if if that doesn't work for you, don't worry about it. There are so many games that come out every month direct to retail. Um, we are spoiled for choice, as it were. All right, Will just wanted to know what happened to Tim Chun. Thought he was going to start doing rundowns for the channel. So did I, Will. Um, I love Tim Chun. In fact, I still subscribe to him. He had a really cool video he just put up the other day uh, about um, getting his some of his board game photography in in Walmart, if I recall correctly. Or was it Target? And you know, kind of doing a, a retrospective of how he started out. Anyway, Tim is great. I was super excited to have him on the board. I think everybody really enjoyed his first rundown for... Fort, but uh, it was a couple days after that rundown went up. Tim started working on another game. It was a, I don't remember which one it was. It was a big, heavy one, though. Like a big, super sprawly 4XE type game. I, for life, I cannot remember which one it was. But he got it set up. There was a little bit of back and forth. And I think it, it dawned on him how. He didn't enjoy doing this. I mean, uh, one thing I will certainly say is I was maybe a bit overbearing with feedback. Um, you know, Shay uh, can certainly attest to this. When he first came on the channel, I gave him hours of feedback on test videos that he had done. And Tim, to get that Ford video out, uh, we had gone back and forth on a bunch of stuff. He'd spent so many hours editing it. And I think he just realized... Yeah, this was not just going to be a fly... I mean, you look at my videos and you think, oh, it's just all fly by the seat of your pants, just go, 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 it's all super easy. But it's actually really, really challenging to do run-throughs the way I do. I, I try to hit all these particular beats that um, you know ensure that players are getting a, a sense of what the game plays like, that you're constantly having to juggle all these different priorities and also still be entertaining and whatnot. And so, like I said, he started working on the second one, and the next day got an email from him saying, you know what? I don't know. I, I think I, I think I just dig my stuff better. And I'm like, okay, no problem. I, I, I would love to have Tim back. I, I'm a huge fan. I think he would do great. I would happily pay him lots and lots and lots of money to like like I do with uh, Shay. And uh, coming soon, Ruel is going to be starting to do some run-throughs as well. And also Ryan. But, you know, he decided he just wanted to go his own way. And uh, I, I wish him the best of luck. If uh, Tim, if you're hearing this, I think you're awesome. And if you ever change your mind and you want to do some more roundups... I've got a list a mile long of games that I would happily have you cover. Uh, so anyway, uh, that's it. Well, you know, just sometimes it doesn't work out. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, Tim realized, Tim had to do what made him happy, and I support him, and I'll keep on watching. Okay. Andre is looking for uh, looking at the Board Game Geek art series, where they take a game and have a different artist make a poster, uh, you know, which is different from the original game art. Uh, Andre got inspired to pitch me a game or a game as a result of this. He wants me to take my top 10 games or top five, if it melts my brain, and tell us which other designer. So um, they'd like to see me re-implement the game. So you saw artists doing retakes on the art of games, and that makes you make me want to have designers. Wow. <clears throat> and, and you're just taking my top 10 games of all time as of whenever you sent this. Although looking at the list, I don't think it's changed. Oh, that... All right. Feel free to get stump... To skip any that you get stumped on, Andre then adds. <laughs> um, all right. Okay, to be able to do this, I think what I need to do is I need to get a list of designers. And the best way to do that... It's an interesting thing. If you go into Board Game Geek and you go to your personal account... 
Uh, where is it? There's there's a tab in there somewhere. I see. So if I go to profile, all right. Let me go on ahead and bring this up so you can see what we're doing here. If you're watching instead of listening. Alrighty then. All right. So you go to profile and then you go to stats and then you can see games owned by designer. And so um, this is just a handy dandy list of, you know, what designers I guess you could say I love the most based on the number of games. I got a bunch of Michael Kiesling games. I've got a bunch of Kinesia games. Those jump out at me. A fair number of Rudiger Dorn games. Interesting. Uh, Stefan Feld games. I probably have more from him than anybody else, I would imagine. Several Steve Finn games. Oh, a bunch of Uwe Rosenberg games are in my collection as well. Vladimir Sushi makes a big... Uh, Javier George makes a big splash. Uh, right. So... What am... All right, so pandemic of all of these designers. <sighs> Can I just say uh, Stefan Feld for all of them? Actually, you know, Stefan Feld does not really do co-op games. So who would I like to see? Oh, you know what? Okay, actually, I'm not going to say universally, oh, I'd like to see Stefan Feld redo all these. If I have to pick one, it's probably going to be Alexander Pfister because all of my top 10 games, or almost all of them, probably the biggest thing that's missing is what Pfister does so well. Taking really cool, interesting Euro-y style gameplay, but then introducing narrative story campaigns where you play through multiple... I mean, he's been doing this for years now. It's absolutely fantastic. And uh, I would love to see him do that for a pandemic. Now, again... He's not really a co-op designer, though. So does that make sense? Who is a great co-op designer? Well, of course, there's um, you know, Isaac Childress. Who else is my go-to for co-ops? That is really interesting. Hmm. No, but I'm just going to go and have... I, mean, I loved Pandemic, the Legacy games, so much because they had really interesting storyline stuff. Uh, so I want to say Fister, but I just don't know if he can, if he can do the job. Oh, man, this is tough. All right, I'm going to have to go to a different list now. Um, let's see here. What do I want? I want to go to Advanced Search. Where are you, uh, Board Game Geek? Advanced Search. Give me that Advanced Search. And Games I Own. Oh, man, this is going to take forever. Andre, you're killing me. I should probably skip already because you, you stumped me on the very first one. But anyway, Games I Own that are co-op in nature. DTT. All right, so that is my advanced search. Submit. And what have we got? All righty, so... Uh, ooh! Marvel Champions, the card game. I absolutely love that. You know, and so you've got Boggs, and you've got a few other people. What would Corey Knizia designing, redesigning Pandemic be like? Whoa! That would be far freaking out. It'd probably be a lot of dice, though. Although not necessarily. His more recent thing, The Initiative, was a really interesting, very different game. Hmm. I didn't get myself some water ready. I might have to pause and go get some water. So I'm thirsty already. Um, yeah. I'm going to say, Korokinichia, if you're out there, redesign Pandemic. That would be far out. Let's see. Then we have my number two, Shadowrun Crossfire. Okay, uh, Shadowrun Crossfire. I don't want anybody to redesign it. It's so perfect. What would I want to see different? How would I want to see Cro Shadowrun Crossfire change? Okay, I'm going to go to Fister. Because honestly, I don't want it to change at all. I just want to see a storyline that plays through, um, that you know plays to the fact that your character very slowly levels up. I'd like to see Alexander Fister uh, tackle Shadowrun Crossfire. Gloomhaven. 
Okay, I'm just gonna be swapping um, the co-op designers. I'm gonna say I want Matt Leacock to redesign Gloomhaven. I want to see the core ideas of Gloomhaven that are so brilliant, but simplified and streamlined down into a tight, elegant package like what Pandemic is. I want to see that game, and I want um, what's it? I, I want uh, Isaac and Matt Leacock to work together because Matt Leacock has been doing such an amazing job working with really cool, interesting designers over the last few years, making his Pandemic spinoff games. I want a Pandemic spinoff set in the Gloomhaven universe where the two of them work together. That would be amazing. And then my, my number four is um, man. I, like I said right up front, uh, my number four is Agricola. I want Alexander Fisher to give me a, a storyline to play through with Agricola. And my number five, Twa, I want the same thing. Yeah, this is what it's going to come down to for most of these. Now that the co-op stuff is out of the way, I want Alexander Fister to be brought in to all of my favorite Euros of all time, not to redesign them, but to work with the original designer and come up with cool, interesting ways to do narrative story stuff. Because he kind of owns this, and I want to see this in all my games. So I'm just going to say Alexander Fister for everything else. <laughs> um, which I guess you could also say is me getting stumped. All right, but anyway, that was an interesting uh, thought exercise, which I was not at all prepared for, Andre. Matilda. Wonders, have I ever taken a look at the game Murano from 2021, not the 2014 game, which is about glassmakers in Venice? And if so, what do I think? Let us open this up. Uh, okay, I think it has absolutely gorgeous, beautiful box art. I think it's already in my wish list. I have it marked as a like-to-have, this game set in the 13th century. Um, it looks like it comes with really nice, cool, real glass pieces, I'm assuming, maybe, from Matago. So, yeah, uh, I was already ahead of you, Matilda. I, uh, Murano, Light Masters is the full title, is definitely one I am interested in because I've already put it on my wish list. Of course, in the old days, you would have already known that because I would have talked about it months ago in Games of Interest coming soon. But um, I am still tracking games and I'm definitely interested. Comes with real glass pieces, brings sound and beauty to the table. Oh my god, Jen's going to love that. Uh, um, and let's see, who's the designer? Francesco Testini. Is that Shion? Is that Xion guy? Yes, it's Xion. Xion is such an amazing design. I want to play it even more. All right, so uh, there you go. I I'm very excited, Matilda. I assume you are as well. Hopefully now more people are having heard about it on the podcast. MJ. Uh, let's go back and back to the podcast. Boop. MJ would like to say thanks for a number of things. First of all, uh, they say... My videos got them into the board gaming as a hobby and gave MJ a good idea of what they were interested in based on the run-throughs. MJ is fully in favor of my near-constant reminder to skip over the final thoughts. Good for you, MJ. And instead, watch the run-through, which gives a good idea of what the play likes and decision required. Okay. Um... All right. Oh, MJ also finds it uh, uh, refreshing and reassuring that I comfortably express negative emotions, uh, which is to say, occasionally I break out in tears. Um, yeah, I don't think of those as negative emotions, but yeah, I, 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 I got to be me. Thank you, MJ. My decision to focus on highlighting women and minorities and all my collaborations is wonderful. Yes, I don't know if a whole lot of people have noticed that. Basically, last year when I started wearing um, Black Lives Matter shirts and other issue shirts, I started doing in my monthly top tens collaborations with uh, women and um, you know and minority or people of color for all my top tens because I decided you know what I'd already over the preceding eight or nine years I'd done tons of crossovers with other white dudes and the industry has more than enough. 
enough focus on what white dudes think of board games. So it's been something I've been very, very conscientious about, finding really cool, exciting voices and uh, hearing what they have to say and spreading the word about them. Alrighty. Uh, my ongoing willingness to sacrifice short-term financial gain for long-term positive social effect through the shirts and donation buttons. Shouldn't be negative to the bottom line. Uh, he's not seeing, but in the current time, it is so good for you. Thank you, MJ. Uh, I, I really appreciate that. Anyway, that's all I got. Please. So MJ had no questions. Um, but uh, just an appreciation. MJ, I appreciate your appreciation. Thank you very much. Uh, it, it really means a lot. You know, there are definitely a lot of ups and downs. I, I go through a lot more ups and downs these days doing the channel than I ever did back when I kept it simple and just kept it safe. Um, but... I, in the end, I mean, your messages like this remind me that it is worth doing. Thank you very much. Nigel uh, says, Recently, publishers such as Isaac Childress and Yellow Games have published statements about Ashley Taylor's allegations against Greg Spence, the CEO of Broken Token, and other content creators such as Rodney Smith have shown support for Ashley and others in the situation. It, it is a terrible situation. Um, yeah, I did see the... Uh, the blog that Ashley did talking about you know some of the truly horrific experiences she had and you know and she's just one of many uh, you know so, so many brave women coming forward uh, you know and that's why Ashley came forward to try to lend her voice to others so other people or other women could take comfort and solace and I have nothing but respect for her it's amazing anyway uh, Nigel wonders in order to make gaming spaces as safe as possible for women and anyone who may feel vulnerable and the type of situation described as Ashley do I feel it's incumbent upon anyone in the industry with a platform of wide-reaching audience probably shows support for those who have suffered abuse wherever the abuse comes to light. Uh, incumbent, no. Um, required, no. Uh, uh, worthwhile and noble and worthy? Definitely, yes. Uh, you know, Rodney Smith has my undying respect for, uh, you know, staying on the front end. And uh, and, and thank you, Nigel, for, for bringing it up because I, I think we all have the opportunity to try to be more supportive and more inclusive, and um, you know, I mean, you know, in, in, the you know, we, we have to listen. That's that's what it is more than anything else. You have to give everybody. And in the case of this one, the interesting thing is Greg Spence, you know, who did shortly thereafter post a rebuttal, you know, a, a self defense. But the in the right in the self defense, he said, "Yes, I had a sexual relationship with one of my employees," and you know, that's it. Doesn't matter what you say after that. So wildly inappropriate. The power differential there is so incredibly unfair that yeah, you were in the wrong from the get-go. And um, you know, and these things coming to life are an opportunity, hopefully, for other, you know, as often as not, much more often than not, clueless white dudes who are drowning in privilege and think everything and think they're just nothing but good guys and they can do no wrong, hopefully gives them the opportunity to stop and evaluate what they might otherwise think is okey fine, okey day when it's not. So um, yeah, I, th I think it's it's a great thing uh, for folks with a platform to try to to to. Use that platform to good effect. I don't think you're required to. I certainly don't blame anybody. I mean, you know, as MJ mentioned in the last question, I mean, I have suffered um, 
or I should say my channel has definitely suffered uh, as a result of me taking the stances I take. And I, you know, for a channel that's just, you know, fledgling and trying to get... I mean, I can afford to suffer because I'm already in like the top three or top four of the industry. So I am willing... And I, you know, I've gone through a lot of soul-searching about this. Should I keep doing it? Should I just back off? Should I just drop the shirt and just, oh, Rado, can you just go back to being about games? And you know, Jen and I talked about it a lot. And again, the, the feedback I get on a regular basis makes it clear to me that I'm doing the right thing. The fact that I, through my actions, can provide a little bit of aid and comfort and solace and support... Uh, to make some people's lives a little bit better is worth it just for that. But I can't blame anyone who's like, look, I'm just, I, I, I want to make a living. This this is my passion, and I and I don't want um, to, uh, you know, uh, you know, um, oh, uh, to 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 challenge that or to risk that. So I, I don't blame anybody for just trying to keep it simple, keep it safe. Um, you know, people got to do what they got to do. You got and you got to do what's right for your own mental health. And this is what is right for me. And uh, and and congratulations to Rodney for taking stands. Um, you know, it's interesting. Rodney does it more you know, in his personal sphere. He doesn't let his, you know his his political stances bleed over into the channel, which is smart. I have often said Rodney Smith is one of the smartest people in the industry. Um, so he can lend his weight um, without necessarily you know suffering you know big backlash on his channel. And Rodney. More than once I have said, man, I wish I had followed your, uh, uh, your, your path instead of going my own way. But you know what? Hey, uh, I'm on my path. I continue to stay on my path. And, uh, and everybody, just do the best you can with what you got. Okay. Daniel wonders, gaming! Addendum to the last episode's question. Surprise, surprise! Uh, he was misunderstood. First of all, Daniel, I'm sorry, I do not remember last month's because it's been a month, you obviously listened, wrote this. So let me see if I can remember what was... All right, so apparently Daniel had a question, and uh, there was a misunderstanding. I, I apologize if I misunderstood, uh, which I assume I did, because you're uh, trying to cl add clarity. One, when Daniel asked about games being objectively good or bad, I didn't mean whether Brass is, as an example, better or worse than Gloomhaven. Okay, so... You meant whether Brass is an objectively good game and another game that has broken strategies or horrible rulebooks or too much luck is a bad game. Oh, okay, so I misunderstood you. I... Okay. And in the same vein, whether Brass is a better game than another game. Oh, right. Okay, I dimly recall this because I think Daniel was surprised. At some point, at, I, at somewhere, I said, in a very hyperbolic way, and I probably said this last uh, month, too... I, I do tend towards hyperbole a little bit. I mean, I'm obviously very off the cuff, very um, you know, just spontaneous. And I did at some point say, in passing, that you know, you could argue that Brass is objectively a good game and because normally when you're talking about whether you know the qualities of gameplay and design and all of that, these are very subjective observations. And I probably somewhere at some point said something like, "Well, you know, it's not subjective. Brass is objectively a great design." Um, all right. Anyway. So, but you didn't put a question here. Uh, all right, okay. And I'm sorry, you, you didn't repeat the question. So I'm going to assume the question was about this. Hopefully I can be a little bit more clear. And it, I, I'm sorry, Daniel, if I'm not, I'll see you again next month. Remind me of the question, because it's been four or five weeks. I don't remember the particulars, so I'm, I haven't made a loss. But <sighs> why would I say that Brass is objectively good? Well, first of all, I if anybody wanted to push back against that, I would acquiesce, um, because I, I, I'm really on the hairy edge of stuff here. But I do think there is something to be said for elegance 
as an objectively good, not positive, not likable, but good, worthy goal in the realm of board game design. Now, I say this as a designer myself, or a former video game designer. Um, Doing less with more, I think, is an objectively um, quantifiable task that you can bring to bear when trying to design a game. And if you can pull it off, I think there is an objective statement said that the more engaging and involving and enlightening and challenging a game can be with fewer rules, that that is a better game than something that hits all those same benchmarks but has five times as many rules. I'm going to say that is an objective superior design because, because, well, I mean, board games, at least certainly the types I like to play, are all about efficiency, all about trying to do more with less, trying to get the most points you can with the, with, uh, you know, the, the most efficient use of your goods conversion or your action selection or whatever it might be. And um, and that, if that's a defining uh, trait of how you win, I would say that is a defining trait of how to best design a game. I mean, I I would have a hard time arguing against if somebody wanted to say Go was the greatest game in human history because there's so much depth to it in spite of the fact that its core rules are so simple and pure and elegant. And that's kind of where I'm coming from. Brass... I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, Brass is super complicated compared to Go. But Brass is... Um, and, and you know what? And actually, I'm going to take a step back. Because I would almost bet money when I said Brass, I probably meant Railways of the World. Because what I'm really thinking about is Railways of the World, how it's such a rich, deep, uh, exciting game, and yet its rule book is like three or four pages long. I think that's true for Brass as well. But I mean... I might have. This all might have been predicated on a mistake. That when I was saying brass, I might have been talking about railways of the world because that's the one. I mean, because brass does have, or at least the original brass has some really weird, complicated, needlessly sloppy stuff that were was Martin Wallace trying to adhere to thematic um, verisimilitude over. Um, you know, pure, clean, elegant gameplay. So actually, I think maybe the whole thing was a misunderstanding because I was almost ta- almost guaranteed talking about Railways of the World because I've always been so impressed by that game, how much there is with, with so little. I mean, Brass I'm very impressed by too because it's hard. You just got, you're going to play a card to do some stuff. But Brass does get a little more complex. So maybe the whole thing was a misunderstanding. But you'll have to remind me what the specific question was, Daniel. But anyway, move on to your bullet point number two to having to do with increasing difficulty. Right. Uh, which apparently um, I misunderstood as well, because uh, Daniel says, I didn't mean increasing difficulty during gameplay, since every good co-op probably uses both to some extent. I meant, oh my god, this game is so easy! Let's increase the difficulty before the game starts. And again, I'm sorry, you're not repeating whatever the question was, uh, but I will continue with what you're saying. Gloomhaven increases the power of the bad guys by rotating cards to a new level. Uh, Spirit Island adds more abilities uh, to bad guys. Right. So... I'm sorry, I don't remember what the question was, Daniel. Um, right. So, okay, you had something to do with my thoughts about how to increase board game difficulty. I do. I, I'm sorry, I don't know the question, but my thoughts on this are, and I've mentioned this several times. I always try to when I when I do coverage of a of a cooperative game that does not include baked-in ways to increase and decrease the difficulty, I think that is a huge oversight. I would almost go as far as to say that is an objectively bad design decision that designers sometimes make with their cooperative games where they just say, 
Here it is. It's just one thing. Because in the same way that repeated play of a competitive game If you and I play a competitive game over and over again, we're both going to get better. Our challenge level is going to increase because our opponent increases in um, the complexity of their gameplay and their understanding of the systems and all that. Cooperative games, which I tend to look at a cooperative game as still a competitive game where I'm competing not against the other people at the table, we are all competing against the designer. It's like a one versus many game. It's all of us versus the designer. And the designer, as we get better at the game, the designer has to change their game to ramp it up. This is absolutely essential. And when games don't do this, and by the same token, when games don't have opportunities to say, hey, you know what? I'm not having fun playing against the designer in this cooperative game. He needs, or she needs, to ramp it down to have an easier difficulty level. This is absolutely crucial. And games that don't do this are making a big mistake. I shouldn't keep saying objective, but I'm going to do it. This is objectively bad design for a co-op that does not include uh, smart and well-implemented ways to adjust the difficulty level to match the player's skill level. I don't know if that was your question, but that's my thoughts on the topic. (coughs) Alrighty. You know, oh, my throat is dry. Hold on, folks. I'll be right back. And I don't even know why I said hold on, because I'm back. Oh, OBS, I love your ability to pause and then unpause and not create split individual files. Yay. Anyway, so who was next? Oh, Matt. Uh, This is more of a YouTube question, says Matt. But does watching an ad all the way through versus hitting the skip button have an impact on your ad revenue? I have no idea, Matt. Um, uh, No idea at all. My suspicion is not. (sighs) No, my suspicion is it probably does make a difference. But... To the point, to the term of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a penny. Because you, that's one thing you got to bear in mind. You watching the ad on my YouTube channel is already giving me a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a penny, whether you watch it all the way through or you skip it. Um, you know, I don't make a lot of money off of the ads uh, at all. The what makes more of a difference is if you are a what's it called? YouTube it used to be called YouTube Red. Now it's called YouTube Premium. I mean, I, the, when when I first turned on, I mean, for years I had just used ad blockers on YouTube. I'll admit it. Uh, I wasn't. I don't know. That, I don't think I was breaking any rules. Maybe I was. Maybe there's something in the, uh, the user agreement you sign when you create your YouTube account that says you will not use ad blockers. I bet there's probably not. But anyway, for years I used ad blockers, and then when I eventually, um, because of our financial circumstances, had to turn ads on for my YouTube channel, and then I saw my first report, and I saw it was something like, gosh, it was ridiculous, like twenty or thirty percent of the total revenue I made was from a very, 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 very tiny, tiny, tiny minority of viewers who were YouTube Red subscribers. And now it's called YouTube uh, Premium. That day, I signed up for YouTube Premium. Um, Because that is the best thing. Short of actually going to my Patreon page and throwing a buck my way a month, which it doesn't matter how many videos of mine you watch in a month, throwing me one or two bucks via Patreon and thereby getting a bunch of cool special behind-the-scenes stuff and voting privileges uh, has a bigger impact than watching all the ads on all my videos when it boils right down to it. Because again, um, you know, you got to bear in mind. I mean, I do get a a decent amount of change. Um, You know, it is definitely financially worth it for me to turn those ads on, but that's only because my videos are seen by thousands of people, um, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in some cases, and so it just adds up slowly over time. 
So, no, don't torture yourself. If there's a skip button on the ad, just skip it, man. Unless, of course, you're interested. In which case, watch the 30, the additional 10 or 15 seconds of it. It probably helps a little bit, but if you really want to help, uh, check out my Patreon. It's patreon.com slash rotto. And uh, I, I do try to make it worth your while with all the, you know, the, the special stuff. Heck, if you only just want to do it once... Go on there and say, hey, I'm going to back right now at the $10 level, which means you get to see a lot of cool, exclusive stuff. And just do it for one month. For that one month, you can watch, what, three years worth of exclusive stuff, and then you can cancel it. And then do that once every year kind of a thing. That is really, uh, ultimately, that kind of stuff adds up more than the YouTube ad revenue. All right. Anyway, Matt then wonders. In my run-throughs, I usually play as a second player, Calling uh, the imaginary player Jen, even though Jen is not involved in the video, have I ever considered the run-throughs while playing with the real Jen? Filming run-throughs, uh, she could play with an open hand. You could still talk about turns. You could still. Uh, all right, okay. Uh, several. Uh, I think a real second player could potentially make my run-throughs more engaging. Um, yes, uh, Jen has appeared uh, for several years. Every month, we would do a live playthrough. And Jen and I would play, and Jen tried to get into the habit of, you know, articulating her thought process as well. But at the end of the day, Jen is not comfortable on camera. Even though she's done it hundreds of times now, um, she is not, she does not enjoy it at all. Uh, and so uh, we ultimately decided, she's like, I just don't want to do this anymore. So we stopped doing the the live monthly gameplay. But if you want to see them, just go to jen.rado.com. J-E-N, period, R-A-H-D-O, period, C-O-M. And again, you will see how many. All right, I'm going to go back. I'm going to just do a quick search. jen.rado.com. That gives you a playlist of all the videos, or most all. I probably missed a few here or there that Jen has appeared in over the years. And there are 108 and almost all of those, almost all of those are gameplay run-throughs where Jen and I sat down and played a game. And almost all of them were live. Uh, Jen does still make an occasional appearance. It's normally when I have to cover uh, games that are real-time. And I just there's no way I can actually demonstrate the functionality without having a human player there. So occasionally she still appears, but not very often. Okay. Finally, Matt says they don't have dogs and cats, but they do have children, which are basically more expensive versions of pets. Uh, those are strong words, Matt. But uh, your words, not mine. In my pre-COVID life, did I have any opportunity to play games with kids? And if so, what games did I play? And did those experiences show you something different about playing games, typically when playing two-player adult-only games? No. Actually, I in my pre-COVID or post-COVID life, I very, very rarely have an experience to play games with anybody other than Jen. And honestly, I'm totally fine with that because I prefer two-player gaming the most. There have been a few games I've played with kids at conventions. And it's nice. I mean, I have to admit, I'm not really a kid person. No offense to kids. If I ever meet you, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're wonderful, cool little people who are growing into wonderful, cool, big people. I've, just, I've always just been a little uncomfortable about kids. I just don't know how to... Because I've never really been around them. Maybe it's because, I mean, when I was in high school, one year for summer, uh, for a summer job, I actually taught, was it Logo, which is a, uh, you know, a developmental programming language that's made for kids. I taught it to a class of Girl Scouts who were, I don't know, aged eight to 12 or something like that. And it was a Girl Scout troop. And they were, I, once a week I would go in and I would teach them. And I was like, and I was a teenager. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm, and, Oh, it was hard, uh, you know, because uh, you know some of them took it really seriously, and if it, if they couldn't quite figure it out, you know, they'd cry, and um, you know, a, a, a little boy would have done this just as okay, his little girl, I think, because they just wanted to get it right, and I'm just like, I'm not equipped to deal with this, and um, 
Yeah, and, and I don't know, maybe ever since then. I mean, before then, I'd really, other than being a kid myself, I'd had no inner experience with kids. That was like my really last major, okay, I am having a consistent, long-term relationship with a child where I'm trying to teach them something or share an experience with them. And it hasn't really happened since then. I have a niece and a nephew who I really, really dig, Zane and Zoe. I've played a few games with them. They're cool. I, I like them. And like I said, I've played a few games with some kids at conventions. And it's interesting. It's definitely different. I tend, I try not to play any differently than I normally would. And because the reality is, when I play with anybody, I tend to articulate what I'm doing the same way I do when I'm filming. And I tend to try to ensure everybody's having a good time. And I say, well, you know, if you're kind of like stuck on what to do, this is something you might want to consider. So, I mean, I don't know. I Wherever I'm with kids, I just try to act exactly as I would with any normal human being. And uh, and just do the best. But yeah, it's it's not something that's really in my wheelhouse, I have to admit. Alrighty. Alejandro recently uh, says, I recently played the new modules for Fresco. That is true for the Fresco Expansion Box, a very clever uh, named expansion. And then, so Alejandro has dug up my previous ratings for the older expansions, and apparently it was a number 11 countdown. I must have done this at some point where I just ranked them all. I don't remember doing it, but I, I'm sure I did this. I'm sure Alejandro didn't ma uh, make this up. And so Alejandro has two questions. In what position would the new modules rank? And my rationale for rating lower, the special blends... Oh, okay, let's do the first thing first. All right, well, first of all, that means i got to get a list. Uh, board Game Geek Fresco Expansion Box. All righty. I'm pulling this up. I think there were six modules, if I recall correctly, and I'm sure they'll all be listed. Yeah, there's the Ladies, the Catacombs, the Pews, the Dome, the Black Market, and the Guild Help. The Guilds. Alrighty, of these new expansions, by far the best one was the the dome. And um, again, looking at my original eleven, my number one was portraits. My number one is still portraits, which comes in the original box. My number two is scrolls. It is still number two. Bishop requests. I'd say three. The 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 windows, the glass, the the glaciers was my number four. The ooh, I might put the domes as my new number four. I think no, domes is number four, so I'm just actually gonna do this. Uh, domes. Alrighty. Then what do we got? Then uh, the the walls and the the glass. Those are fantastic. The bells. The bells. Uh, I. Right. The wishing well. Medicio bishop's favor special blends, and leaf gold. You know what? I'm going to tie almost... I mean, I really like the domes in the new one. I like the black market. I'm going to say the black market is over bells. Black market. And actually, I like the guilds too, but I like the black market better than the guilds. The guild. Uh, let's see. And then we've got the pews. Boy, I did not like the pews very much at all. Really didn't like them in the new expansion, which is gathering wood to build pews. I might... Actually, the pews might literally be my least favorite thing. And now, even less than Leaf Gold and the Wishing Well and all that. So I'm going to say the pews are at the bottom of the list for me. Catacombs. I'll put Catacombs over the Wishing Well, but just barely. I, I, I pretty much rate them exactly the same. The ladies. Oh, the ladies are good. The ladies are pretty cool. Ladies are going to jump back up a little bit. Uh, I've... I, I, I'm not going to put them above the black market, but between um, wall frescoes, the ladies or the dames, I think my rule book refers to them as. Um, and then, 
This can't be fun for anybody. Right, so if I mentioned the guild, I've mentioned the black market, the dome, the pews, the catacombs, the ladies. I think that's all six. One, two, three, four... No, I'm missing one. One, two, three, four, five. What am I missing? I did not rate the catacombs, the pews, the dome, the black market... Oh, the guild! The guild! The guild is nice! The guild is nice. No, I did put the guild here. What am I missing, then? One, two, three... Four... Five. All right, this is the last time. I'm sorry, folks. This is terrible to listen to. All righty. All right, I'm just checking these one after another. There's the guild. There's the black market. There's the dome. There's the pew. Oh, there! I just didn't see. Okay, they're all there. All right. So if you're watching this, you can see my new list. The you know, I haven't, I'm not getting to your second question yet. The reason I've ranked these this way is. Fresco is a brilliant design. I talked about this um, when I when I covered the new expansion in the roundup, I guess. The developers here seem to have an an unfortunate love affair with randomness. I mean, the I mean, there's no better example of this than the wishing well, where you literally just draw coin tokens and maybe you get something that's useful, maybe something that's not. Leaf gold is the same thing. The pews is terrible, and um, in that hey. It, spend a lot of time and resources getting this wood so you can do an action to build pews. And then just draw a random tile and get anywhere from two to four points, and you have no way of knowing what you're going to get. And if you do it several times, you just get low points. Uh, somebody else who only did it once could get as many points as you, and that's terrible. They should all be freaking face up, and it's a race. The first player to do it gets the higher value points. That's the way this stuff should be done. Too much randomness. Catacombs is a cool idea. I loved a lot of stuff about it. But in the end, its impact was so randomizing in that some players could get incredibly lucky and others couldn't. As opposed to the domes, where once you earn that dome, you've got the whole game to prepare because it gives you in-game scoring opportunities. The ladies, once you've earned them, they just give you extra worker placement actions you can do. The guild is just a way that you have an extra opportunity to convert paint into other paint. Uh, the black market is an extra opportunity to get those tiles that you couldn't get because they were left in the bag. Um, so I prefer the less random disruptive stuff and the stuff that gives you more strategic stuff to think about. So that's how I would rank the new stuff. Alrighty, your question t number two, Alejandro. My rationale for rating lower the special blends was because the chosen colors represent the most complex blends. Um, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, the brown and all that. Do I emphasize this is a silly reason? But man, it's an odd. Right. I, 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 I it, you know, so Alejandro says it's a totally obligatory module. This has suddenly become the Fresco Hour, folks. For folks who don't know Fresco, sorry, this is a game where you are basically a Leonardo da Vinci type who is trying to paint the equivalent of the Sistine Chapel. And every round you live through a day where you go to the market, you mix paints, you actually paint, you go to the theater to improve your mood, you take special commission jobs to make money, etc., etc. So anyway, so Alejandro says, I was being a bit silly rating it so low because one of the things you can do, one of the modules is the uh, the special blends where you can convert the base colors into some advanced colors like you know blue and red becomes purple and 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 painting with purple is more valuable and there's a module you could turn on where you could mix those advanced colors into super um, exquisite what are they called the complex blends and what are the colors you make super hot pink and brown and it's just, it's just goofy that, oh, the most valuable color that you could possibly use to get the most points and make the most beautiful chapel, uh, you know, Sistine Chapel, is ugly mud brown. And that always just kind of bugged me. 
Um, it was it was appropriate, I guess, in terms of the color wheel, but it just seems strange. Now, I heard somebody mention or argue, Alejandro, that no, that particular shade of brown is really tough to get in real life or something. I don't remember. I will admit it's a silly thing, and I certainly understand why it is definitely, for you, a must-have um, module. For me, it's just kind of continuing what the game already does really well. Uh, you know, it already has mixed paints, and yes, you could do more mixed paints. But you know, new modules, I'd rather they do something really new and different rather than. I mean, I, I would, I would prioritize something rather than something that just gives you a little bit more of what the game already does. Okay, um, how did I enjoy the module for two, three, and four? I couldn't tell you. I've only, I've only ever played Fresco as a four-player game, maybe twice in my whole life. Once with some friends of Jen, and then once with Rodney Smith and some other folks at a convention. Um, so anyway. Uh, that, that's my new breakdown. Oh, wait. Oh, you're not done yet. Okay. Last year, I did a rundown for gr uh, the Grand Austria Hotel Les Waltz. And upon the publisher's request, I was only allowed to discuss the ballroom module, uh, you know, which was module four. Uh, oh, and uh, right, yeah, I wasn't supposed to, but I did talk about module four, which lets you change the turn order, uh, which was very important. Having played all modules so far... Um, Alejandro have only enjoyed Module 1, which we wouldn't always play with, and the extra content. We felt that many of the new modules were more relevant to higher player counts and not really needed for 2. How did you enjoy the 2, 3, and 4? Did the expansion increase your rating for uh, Grand Austria Hotel? You have me at a disadvantage. I, I backed this because the publisher wasn't going to send me a copy. Um, and I've got it, and I haven't... I mean, that expansion I had, I got to see some of the stuff, but we didn't play with it much. I mean, what what was the module? I don't even remember what the module was. Grand Austria Hotel, 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 Waltz. I can type. Right, so what are the modules? Oh, man, come on, Board Game Geek. Don't list... Why didn't you list them? All right. I did think it was a really... I didn't expect it was going to make that much of a difference, the, you know, the getting rid of the turn order snake, but it made such a huge difference, even for two-player. I mean, I, 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 oh, the interesting thing, you don't need to, to buy the expansion. It's simple rules. I think the game came with a board to keep track, but it wasn't a little mini-board. So what was the one I even talked about? Oh, Board Game Geek, you have totally failed me. And I already feel like I've... For folks who haven't played these games, this is incredibly boring. And oh my god, Board Game Geek doesn't even have the rules, so I could look them all up. All right. I'm sorry. I, 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 I can't say. I haven't played with them very much at all. I'd like to. But the problem is, since the publisher didn't send it to me so that I would do a review, I bought it myself. It's an expansion I will very rarely play, if ever. Because at any given time, I've got 50 to 100 games that publishers have sent me, and I need to prioritize those. I bought it because I thought it was great and I wanted to own it, but I haven't had a chance to play it. I'm a bit d bummed uh, that your report is that they... Did they seem to be a higher player count focused? I could certainly understand that. I hope I disagree if I ever get a chance to play it. Um, in the meantime, I admit I'm very silly for even buying these expansions that I'll probably never get to play. Like I said earlier, I backed Edge of Darkness. This is the only expansions I the only things I back on Kickstarter are expansions that I'll probably never get to play until I retire from <laughs> runs through. Alrighty, Chris wonders: Do I follow board game TikTokers? Answer, no. I know nothing about TikTok. I made a TikTok account to see if I should start doing stuff there. I, I spent like 15-20 minutes looking around TikTok. I found absolutely nothing that interested me at all. I am not interested in sub-one-minute content and uh, or and silly video memes. So I, I just... Uh. Right, anyway, but you continue. Recently found there were some board game accounts on TikTok, and those following surpass... 
those on YouTube. Uh, TikTok Board Games has almost 400,000 followers, which is more than Shep and Sit Down. Some of the videos have over 1 million views. I saw at least three of the board game accounts that have over 100,000 followers, and there may well be more. Is there a different board game audience following these? Have I considered getting into? Well, I just kind of said I did consider at the time, um, and this was at the time when there was almost nobody. So I guess I'm an idiot. Obviously, I should have done it. But I don't know. I can't imagine what I do would be interesting. I mean, I'm long form to the core. And I'm not silly. I actually go out of my way to try not to be silly or quirky or funny. Um, I, it's, to me, it's always kind of cringy. I cringe at the thought of trying to be entertaining. I, I, I'm just myself. And myself is very long and um, pontificating and blusterous. And I just don't think I'm a good fit. What I've often thought I should be doing, and even if I wouldn't do it on TikTok, I should be doing it on YouTube right now with YouTube pushing the shorts, which is basically their equivalent of TikTok, hashtag shorts, is every time Jen and I play a game for the first time, after it's done, or maybe even midway, while we're halfway through a game, I should just get my phone out, and just quickly record one minute of, you know, in-situ thoughts. Here's what's happening in the game. Here's what we think so far. Here's what the game is. Boom. Out in under a minute. Based on what you've just told me, I should clearly be doing that. Do people make money off TikTok? I don't know. Um, I don't know. Of course, you confused me. I had no idea that there was this level of success to be found on TikTok. I guess I'll have to go investigate. Anyway, though. You've just listened, meanwhile, Chris says, to episode 75 and found the comparison of distilled and scrumpy campaigns very interesting. This is when I talked about why did two games about um, you know making alcoholic beverages, one did so much better than the other. Um, right. So it got Chris thinking about the latest Dr. Finn campaign for the 2022 game series, which, is just, which has just been canceled. Yeah, I was really bummed to see that. As far as I can see, his Kickstarter campaigns do everything right. He's a proven track record of delivering on them and making good games. I, don't, uh, I can't see why they often fun, struggle to fund. Perhaps the recent campaign didn't have a well-known game like Biblios, but even without it, would have thought it would have gotten enough interest, which turned out not to be the case. Have you any idea why this is? Oh yeah, I'll tell you why this fails. I, and I don't understand why uh, why Stephen is doing this. It is a bad idea to try to do a Kickstarter campaign, which is a compilation of five different games. Because um, you know, even I mean, I'm, I'm sure he offered the option to say, "Look, you don't have to get all five games. You can just get you can back and get one or two or three or four. Which God must be a logistics nightmare for him. But I'd bet money that's the way he set it up. But I guarantee you, most potential backers, if they came across that Kickstarter campaign and saw, oh, it's the it's the Doctor Steve Finn five pack. Let me look at these five games. Oh, I think I'd like maybe one of these. Pass. You, I mean, you have to understand uh, when you are trying to put stuff like this together, just how bad a job your audience will do understanding the value proposition you are trying to do. I will give you an example. I, I'm doing the R and R show now every week. Rel Gaviola and I, um, you know, talk live for a week, and every week we do a contest giveaway, and every week we explain what you have to do, and every week. Easily, 50% of the contest entries that come in to contests at Rado.com did not follow the incredibly simple, super basic rules that I gave. I say, put this in the subject title, and then do whatever else you want. 
50% of the people don't do that. They, they, they put the secret word in the body of the message, so I've had to set up things to search for that. Um, the most recent one we did, the one last week, uh, I, I, had to say, I had to actually, hey, put the secret word in the title, and in the body, put the country you're in, because we need to know the country for the restrictions of the contest. And again, probably about 20% of the people just didn't do it. Just completely ignored it, even though Ruel and I repeated it like 10 times. And it was so simple. But, and here's the deal. I've just come to the conclusion that people are living their life. And they don't have time. You know, Ruel and I gave a lot of thought about how to do this, and we tried to make it as simple as possible. It wasn't simple enough. And so... Uh, and, and that's fine. I, I do my best to, to to try to ensure everybody gets an opportunity to invest. I mean, even if they don't follow the rules, I still try to make sure every contest entry makes it where it's supposed to go, so everybody has a chance of winning. But in such in- incredibly simple rules, and people, as often as not, get it wrong um, because they're living their life. They just don't have time to pay attention because they're moving on to the next thing. So you have something like Dr. Finn saying, here's five really cool games. One, that's overload. What? I don't have time to read about five games and figure out which ones I like. And then, oh my God, even if I do like them, I don't want to buy five games to get one I like. And I guarantee you, he probably wasn't, that that was not a requirement, but people just don't see it. And so him doing those those yearly collections, he is setting himself up for failure. And it breaks my heart, because I'm sure they're all awesome, and he would have been much better off um, doing them as individuals, likely. But, ah, it is what it is. Um, or maybe at the very... Nah, I don't know. I, I, I think that's why... I, that's my assumption as to why it failed. Alrighty, and it breaks my heart because I mean I'm, I guarantee you they were all great designs, and I and I hope he can repackage and and come back and and come back stronger. Alrighty, Ben says after seeing my run through and praise for Solar Sphere, I was curious if uh, Aiden Lothar's previous game Solar Storm, uh, if I saw Solar Storm was on Kickstarter. If not, it's a pandemic tiny epic defenders type co op game set in space. You might like it. I suspect I would. I mean, because Solar Sphere is fantastic. So yeah, I'm definitely interested in Solar Storm as well. Why didn't I cover it? Did he not contact me when it was on Kickstarter? I am now going to go search through my email archives. Solar Storm. Let's see, did we ever talk about Solar Storm uh, when it was on Kickstarter back in 2019? DDD. All righty. And uh, looks okay, I do have an email from him. Uh, okay, uh, the, the, the reality was, I mean, when I moved back to the States and our cost of living skyrocketed, mostly, mostly due to the uh, United States' absolutely horrific healthcare system, I had to start charging for my Kickstarter previews. And he contacted me and I said, yes, I would like to cover Solar Storm. And here's my, here's what I charge. And he said, oh, that's not my budget. Um, maybe I can, maybe you can cover it when it goes to retail. And, um, yeah. Oh, wait. No, I take it back. I take it back. He did say, yeah, oh, that's that's hard for my budget, but I think I'll be able to do it. And then I said, hey, sorry for my solar pie. I went back and looked through the rules, and while it looks like a solid enough design, I'm afraid it's probably too light for our taste. I'll have to pass on covering it. Very sorry about this. Oh, well, that's embarrassing. I should probably erase everything I just said, but, eh. Um, all right, so here's the thing you have to understand uh, about me when it comes to evaluating what I am going to cover on Kickstarter, um, you know, and do paid previews for. 
And, uh, and why did I pass on Solar Storm? When I'm reading the rules for these, I am looking for any reason I can think of to say no. Even the tiniest little thing, like, oh, I think maybe that's a little bit too lightweight, or, oh, it's got roll to resolve, or, oh, of the 50 cards, one of them has an aggressive take that card in it. Any opportunity I have to say no, I will take it and say no, because there's just too many games. And um, there's just too many games. And so I say no, nine out of ten times. And I said no to this. And here's the thing. I suspect I probably made a terrible, terrible mistake. And I will admit, I probably, because I'm super duper um, restrictive, and I'm very quick to say no, because I just don't want to take the chance of, occasionally I've said yes, and the game shows up, and Jen and I hate it. Absolutely hate it. And I, I hate having to go back to the developer and say, oh, I'm really sorry. I know you spent a lot of money to get this out to us. I don't think I should cover this game because I'll rip it apart and it'll hurt your campaign. Would you like me to send it off someplace else? And I just don't want to make that mistake. And I don't want to waste Jen's time. And so, considering how fantastic Solar Sphere is, and this is from the same designer, it's basically a prequel, I bet you anything, I was an idiot and I should have said yes to Solar Storm. I bet you, reading the rules... I did not appreciate whatever subtle depth there was there, and I can guarantee you I now look forward to playing it at somewhere down the road. Um, right. So, that's that's what happened there. Alrighty. Jelly says, Recently, I saw an episode of the R&R show, which Jelly really likes, about upcoming Kickstarter games. Shouldn't it be renamed Top 10 Upcoming Crowdfunding Games? Jelly knows that sometimes a brand becomes so big it takes over. Uh, so when people say Kickstarter, they mean crowdfunding. But GameFound is becoming a, a small competitor for Kickstarter concerning board game crowdfunding. Do you think GameFound will become so popular in time that Kickstarter will not be used for board games anymore? Or do you think that GameFound is a nice try, but it'll never compete with Kickstarter, not even concerning board games? Or will they probably coexist? I suspect they will coexist. Kickstarter being the big brother of GameFound. I, I mean, it's... Man, uh, Kickstarter has such an amazing... Uh, uh, first place advantage. I mean, you know, I, as you said, or as you uh, hypothesized, Kickstarter is synonymous with crowdfunding. Indiegogo has been around for a long time. And Indiegogo regularly does big, big... I've backed several things on Indiegogo. And, you know, Indiegogo gets million-dollar campaigns all the time. And yet, interestingly, you don't say, hey, what about Indiegogo? Board games have been on Indiegogo as well. Because Kickstarter is kind of untoppable. Now, I think GameFound has a much better shot that um, of, of being a competitor for Kickstarter than Indiegogo did because it's so focused. And because, honestly... If, if I were a potential customer of a game, I would much rather it be on GameFound than Kickstarter because the interface on GameFound for me as a customer is so much nicer, so much easier. I mean, just the fact that there's a table of content so I can skip around really easy. Just the fact that GameFound allows, um, the, ba allows the, the, the project runners to do things like create shopping carts so I can mix and match and all cart things. I mean, I have run Kickstarter campaigns. Kickstarter is so incredibly restrictive and it makes it so difficult to make things easier for your customers customers, um, which is why there's been such an explosion of aftermarket pledge managers, because Kickstarter Kickstarter's bu has built-in pledge manager stuff, and it's the worst. It's absolutely terrible. And Kickstarter is so on the top of the mountain that they have no reason 
to really improve because they 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 rule the roost. So I think it's great the GameFound exists to challenge Kickstarter, so the Kickstarter will um you'll get a little bit more competitive. So um yeah I I but I don't I, I don't know that Kickstarter can be dethroned quite frankly. Uh, but well, time will tell. Uh, to your question of why didn't we call it the top ten upcoming crowdfunding games, I'll be honest because. Probably at least 30% fewer people would watch the video if we had said that. It's as simple as that. People go... I mean, a huge portion of my audience uh, watches my videos based off of recommendations or generic searches. And a lot more people who are interested in cool, new, hot board games search on YouTube for um, board game Kickstarter than board game crowdfunding. If I named it board game crowdfunding... People who are searching for board game Kickstarter wouldn't find my video. And here's the deal, folks. I'm actually paying Ruel. He is not showing up for free. And um, I pay people very well to be on my channel. And so I need this show to be successful so that I can get sponsors, so that I can pay Ruel, so we can keep doing the show. So, it was a very cold, calculated decision on my part to name that episode Top 10 Kickstarters because there's no two ways about it. I would It would not have gone anywhere near as many views if I'd called it Top 10 Crowdfunding. And on top of that, the reality is everybody understands that, oh, when he says Kickstarter, he means crowdfunding. And in the video, we always called out, oh, now this one isn't on Kickstarter, this one's on GameFound. And I believe in that video, I even said, you know, watch out, Kickstarter. GameFound is coming for you. It's a superior service. Because it is, both for um, project runners and for consumers. Um, but yeah, I, you know, we're, we're, gonna, we're, we're planning on doing this top 10 every month. One of our four episodes every month will be top 10 upcoming crowdfunding games. But for the, f- for the foreseeable future, I think we're going to keep on calling them top 10 Kickstarters. Because I want more people to watch this so I can pay Ruel... Um, for his time, because he is worth it and he deserves it. And um, and I don't want to literally lose money on doing the show because I'm paying Ruel. Uh, and again, the ads don't come anywhere close to covering it. So we need sponsors. Sponsors means more people viewing, a lot more people view, if I call it Top 10 Kickstarters. So that's, that's why that choice was made. Believe me, you are not alone in asking about this, Jelly. I mean, a lot of people asked. Um, maybe I'll just point people to this particular answer when people ask. Because I'm sure they'll ask the next time we do it. Am I planning to do an Essen episode like I did do the podcast? Really uh, enjoyed the preparation for the Essen Spiel. Yes, we well, we just did the other day Top 10 Gen Con, and we will be doing a Top 10 Essen one as well. Now, that's not like what I've done in the past, where usually I've done like a Top 50. Um, because another reason that we're... Another way that we're trying to ensure the R&R show is successful is by not letting it go for two or three hours, which it could easily do. Because believe me, we are both chatterboxes. And believe me, every episode, when we're getting close to the hour mark, we're saying, okay, I get out of here. There's always people in chat saying, keep going, keep going. Those people are the minority. Going over an hour significantly limits. I mean, if a lot fewer people will watch if they see, oh, that's a 90-minute video. Oh, that's a 120-minute video. Oh, that's a 300-minute video. A pass. You know, it's like the old uh, retailer trick. Hey, this isn't a $100 thing. This is a 1995 thing because of that little trick that makes your brain say, oh, well, at least it's not 100 bucks, So it's affordable when it's you're saving five cents. Um, for the same reason, we are trying to keep ourselves at most an hour, um, which is why we're staying to top tens. What I will be doing, though, 
Actually, after I'm done with this and my throat isn't trashed, I'm going to film my next ramble and, and talk about 50 Gen Con games instead of the 10 we talked about. But that's only for backers of the show. Did I mention earlier, folks? Uh, I'm trying to make a living at this. And so I have a Patreon, and every month for $2, you get to see a, a uh, backer-only ramble. And this month, you're going to get to see uh, me talk about 50 games for Gen Con. And I'll do the same thing, a much deeper dive for my Patreon supporters uh, when Essen comes around. Okay. Mario. Oh, the man. We're not even halfway through this list. I got to move it, move it. And my throat's already starting to get trashed. Wait, anyway, though, Mario says... Uh, do I, in my opinion, consider games like Concordia and Aquatica to be deck builders? No. I, I, I think, from the letter of the law, yes, they are. You have a deck of cards. You are adding cards to that deck. That is the very... Uh, during play. That is the very definition of a deck builder. I, can t- I try to call them hand builders, though, because both of these games, the trick of it is, you don't... I mean, it's a deck of cards, but it's such a small deck that you pretty much hold it in your hands at all times. And so, so that's why I call them hand builders. But officially, yeah, they're deck builders. Anyway, uh, Mario does not call them deck builders, considers them hand management action selection. Uh, maybe more of the former. Uh, for quite some time, uh, Mario has been seeing different people considering these games as deck building, which to me doesn't make sense. You don't have a deck... You do. A deck of cards. I mean, how many... I'm going to do a search. How many cards must be in a deck to consider it a deck? I can't imagine Google's going to give me something here. Um, Right. No, there's people talking about 52 cards in a standard deck and stuff like that. Uh, You know, Magic the Gathering has restrictions for what's a deck, but I don't know. What's a deck of cards? Is... Okay, I, 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 I would say two cards is not a deck of cards. Is three cards a deck of cards? Five, I, I don't know about lower. I'm going to say once you have five cards, you got a deck of cards. Just a very, very tiny deck of cards. So, and again, I agree with you. I don't think of it that way. But it's mostly because... It's, it's not because of the number of cards in the deck. It's because... I don't know. Or maybe maybe you talk about this more. All right. You don't have a deck. You have a hand. You select from, and at some point you get it back. The same happens with Lewis and Clark. Uh, so which mode are you in? Uh, it is a deck of cards. You are building it. Unless you, unless there is some official definition that I didn't find in my five second Google search that says no, a deck of cards must be at least fifteen cards. Pro- less than fifteen cards, it's not a deck. It's a hand. Maybe, but yeah. It doesn't matter at the end of the day. It's they're great games. What I I mean, I hand management doesn't. But I mean, calling it a hand management action selection game that's not true to the game either, because it is central in Lewis and Clark and Aquatica and Concordia that you get more cards over the course of the game that you build. You I mean you I mean I mean you could say oh that's just hand management but. Hand management has been around for a long time, and I mean, I think that has more to. I don't know, man. <laughs> it's 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 immaterial. I think hand builder is the best thing. That will never catch on because it's just not catchy. Deck builder is fine. I'm I'm really not going to worry too much about it. It's the same way I've, I've stopped correcting people when they say I really like this game mechanic, and like I used to. Oh, it still just rips apart my soul, but. You know, language is imprecise. It's all about context. And, um, yeah. They're, they're, they're deck builders. And 
if you want to define a deck of cards as more than just the number of cards, I guess you could define it as... You can't have access to all cards at all time? Maybe? But again, these cards, you do eventually... They go to a discard pile, and then you don't have them anymore. So there are times when you... I mean, when it's functioning like a deck. Some of the stuff is in my hand. Some of the other stuff is on the table in a draw pile. Does a deck builder suddenly stop being a deck builder when I don't have a draw pile anymore? For that brief window in Dominion where my draw pile is gone and I'm still playing cards and I've got nothing but a discard pile, is it no longer a deck builder because there's not a draw pile? No, it's still a deck builder. Because at the end of the day, it is a deck of cards. And you put cards in it. And I'm repeating myself. And I apologize. I will move on. Mario. Alrighty, lately, Mario... uh, uh, Especially because of... Terraforming Mars, the Ares Expedition, has noticed a lot of people mix art and graphic design. Art are the illustrations made for the game. Graphic design is how the information is presented. Layouts, iconography, text. Why do you think this happens so much? Because uh, because people got lives to live. And it's, 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 it's a meaningless distinction to them. It's a meaningless distinction to them because, you know, at the end of the day, from the, they... For somebody who does not know the name Vincent Dutre or the Miko or Beth Sobel, who doesn't give that a second thought and only doesn't think anywhere around of, oh, is it is it nice looking or not? It is all the same. Graphic design and art fall under the same umbrella of what does this game look like? Do I like it? And if they're not going to think any deeper about that, because, again, they're not deep divers, it makes perfect sense that for them, graphic design and art are completely interchangeable terms. That's that's just the nature of it. I mean, because they're experts in other things. I'm sure whoever, whoever makes that mistake, there is something they know about that they really appreciate all the minutiae and all the clear definitions of, I don't know, if they're... If they're chefs, or if they like to knit, or they um, do motocross on the weekends, then they probably know about all these very specific things that are very important. But to you or I would say, oh yeah, it's the same. It's all the same. It's just, you know, and this is, this is just human nature. It's just the way it is. Um, not everybody pays as much attention to the, uh, to, the, to the makeup of their games, because they're just having fun playing the games, and I say more power to them. Um, I have heard, says Mario that uh, when I, Rado, have talked about Race for the Galaxy, but never the expansions or the impact they have on both the game. Uh, what do I think of the expansions for Race? Can I mention a favorite one? Uh, no, I can't. I don't believe I've ever played any of the expansions for Race for the Galaxy. And that was because I loved Race for the Galaxy, kept, owned it for years, but I took Tom Vassell... Tom Vassell has been very anti-Race for the Galaxy expansions. And this was way back in the day, before I was more discerning, let's say, before I realized just how often I strongly disagree with Tom. You know, when I viewed Tom... Although it's ironic, literally one of the first probably ten posts I ever made on Board Game Geek was me arguing with Tom Vassell about... Oh, what was it? Uh, you know, a, a neat little cooperative card game that he kind of ripped apart, and I really liked. And I, I, I just told him why it was wrong. I should have known right from the get-go that I disagree with Tom a lot. But I trusted Tom when he said, "Yeah, all these Race for the Galaxy expansions are worthless. They, you don't need them. They add nothing to the game." And I'm like, "Okay, fine. I'll just not seek them out." Since then, once I fell in love with Roll for the Galaxy, I got rid of Race for the Galaxy. So I've just never tried any of them. I suspect, if I were to go back, 
I would probably find a lot more to appreciate in these expansions than Tom does. Because I now, these days, have a better understanding of what Tom, where Tom and I agree and where Tom and I disagree. And I am a more discerning consumer of board game media. But that's just where I was, so I've never played any of them. Also, am I excited about a future Jump Drive expansion? Yes! I, did, I was unaware one is coming! What the what? Board Game Geek. Back to Board Game Geek. Jump Drive. Jump Drive, for folks who don't know, is basically like um, like mini Race for the Galaxy. Plays super fast. Well, there's nothing out about Board Game Geek, so I didn't know. But you've gotten me very excited, sir. Alrighty. How often do I rearrange the front boxes in the background behind me? Uh, am I making a profit on some of these spots? You can ignore the last one if you don't want to talk about it. I can't ignore that, Mario! It's right there on the screen! Come on, man! You know that I'm showing everything, so now I have to answer the question. No, I have not. And uh, I'll be honest. I have, made, I have given the offer to board game publishers. Hey, board game publishers, if you'd like to spend just a tiny bit of money, this doesn't have to be this game. That doesn't have to be that game. It could be your game. And literally, thousands of people will see it floating right next to my head. And so far, no one's shown any interest. I'm really surprised. Because, yes, Tom does get paid to hang those boxes on the wall behind him. The board game geek gets paid to put those uh, boxes in, in his virtual background. And I thought, well, geez... A lot of people watch my videos, but so far, no one's shown any interest. So, board game publishers, if you would like people to see your game, I'm not charging hardly anything. I'm charging a lot less than Tom charges. Uh, so, no, no, no one has shown any interest. I'm really kind of surprised. I think it's maybe, to be honest, because I don't just have a background with three games. I've got a background with, I don't know, what is this, 30 games? So maybe, maybe I'm not doing myself a disservice and I just need to literally plug everything with just black cloth and only have three games behind me. Maybe then people would be interested. Um, trying to make a living here, folks. All righty. Uh, all right. In different interviews, uh, Mario has seen Tom Lehman referring to the misconception a lot of people do that they mix theme and setting. Paraphrasing him because I can't remember right now. Uh, Mario can't remember. The idea is it's something like this. In Pandemic, everyone says the theme of the game is uh, the pandemics are spreading around the world and we need to find cures. But that's not the theme. It's the setting. The theme is actually survival. On the Beyond Solitaire podcast, Dave Turchi also mentioned a bit something about these terms. Can't remember 100%. What do you think about this? I think Dave Turchi and Tom Lehman are design geniuses. I've ha spent a fair bit of time talking to both of them in real life and had a great time. I enjoy their company. They are both wrong. They are 100% wrong. Um, <laughs> English is a sloppy language. It's, uh, and it's all about context cues. Theme can one theme can talk about can be referencing the under I, I think uh, no pun included also gets on this hobby horse as well and they are also wrong theme can be used to talk about the underlying ideas that tie the artistic work together you know the theme of uh, Citizen Kane is about obsession and loss right that's what Rosebud is and. Uh, you know, and that's the theme. The theme is not rich guy. Um, you know, thinks a lot about 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 Rosebud. In case you haven't seen, I'm not going to spoil Citizen Kane here. Yes, traditionally that has been the definition of theme. But you know what? When parents, for their child's um, eighth birthday, throw a fairy tale themed birthday party, 
They're not saying that the underlying artistic structure of their birthday party has to do with, um, you know, the dichotomy of fantasy and reality fairy tales. No, they're saying they're throwing a themed birthday party or a cowboy birthday party or a science fiction birthday party. Theme can mean what um, Dave and Tom are talking about, but theme can also be synonymous with setting. Let's confirm this, shall we? Let's do theme, definition. What do we got here? Um, do, do, do. Theme, uh, this is just Google's definition. The subject of a talk, piece of writing, person's thoughts, exhibit, a topic. The idea that recurs or pervades a work of art or literature, which is what they're talking about. Number three, give a particular setting or ambiance. And the example, the amusement park will be themed as a Caribbean pirate stronghold. Done. Words have more than one meaning. Um, and so, if you want to be clear about what you're saying, you can't just say theme. You can't. If you want theme to mean a specific thing, use your context clues, and it will be clear to your audience what you're talking about. And don't worry about the fact that people are using the words wrong. Life is too short. Language evolves. That's the way it's supposed to work. That, those are my feelings on that topic. All righty. <laughs> All right. Um, love you guys. From Vasco. Game questions. Last month, Gerard or someone mentioned, uh, once again, the topic of ratings changing as expansions come out. I explained that I see games and their expansions as a whole singular product and thus rate that product on some of its parts. And this might arguably be more justified for some games, living card games, for example, than others, modular plug-in expansions that do not change the core game. Have I ever considered, continues Vasco, Adding notes to each game, noting the rating of just the base game, and then however rate... Oh, and so on. I could do that, but oh my god. It's a lot of work to maintain my ratings as it is. Going that extra mile when the interface for BoardGameGeek does not make that easy. Trying to make anything other than just a rating number. It's like you got to go through like 10 different clicks, and then it doesn't keep it all in one place. So if I need to change stuff or update stuff, I could do that. I am certainly not going to do that. Uh, you're, I mean, you're, you're right. It could give uh, people a more specific idea of how I rate each individual expansion, um, overall quality game, since I don't rate the expansions. That's true. But man, I just can't do it. There's just too much. Um, so my suggestion is, if anybody would like to know, you can always just ask. I guarantee I will answer the question. I just rated in this very podcast all of the Fresco expansions. I will do that for you. Talk to me wherever you find me on YouTube or Twitter or Board Game Geek. I will tell you how I feel about each and every one. Because chances are, like less than 1% of my audience wants that information. And I just, it's just not a good return on my time investment to break all that down. It's much easier to just answer that one out of a hundred people who would like to know. Um, right. Okay. Number two, regarding storage. I've, I've recently mentioned on the R&R show that I like storing my games vertically. Yes, I do. Since it gives a real sense of a game library. Vasco agrees. <clears throat> but... Do I ever have to deal with lid drift and with things falling out of place? Or do I put every component in baggies? I put all components into baggies. Let's just grab Merv right here. Let's take a looky-loo. Sorry for folks who are listening. Oh, wait. No, no. Right. No, not, Merv's not a good one. Let's get, let's get uh, right behind it. Near and far. Near and far is a better one. Hey. Let's look in this box. Uh, cloth bag. Baggy, 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 
bag with cards. Oh, some people will be very upset. A stack of cards with a rubber band around it. Another one. Probably just because I didn't have any bags on hand. This is how I do everything. Everything gets baggies. I would happily, it would make me so incredibly happy if the board game industry would abandon their obsession with inserts. And, um, and, uh, you know, because, I mean, I understand why inserts are needed to keep components from shifting during, you know, and that's why so many games have those weird little well inserts where it's just, why is this piece of cardboard here? It's not to be a functional insert. It's to keep your stuff from getting damaged in international transit. Uh, I do not like inserts. I, I find them annoying. I After a game is over and I'm tired mentally, I just want to, okay, quickly separate everything into piles and then just throw those piles into bags. Uh, when I begin playing a game, I have a lot more mental fortitude for separating things if I need to. So yeah, everything's in baggies, and, and it's just never a problem. You're right, there are some games that are super full, especially a game that has like five or six expansions that I've stuffed all in there. And in those cases, I just try to make sure that those are in shelves where there's a bunch of stuff, so they're held closed. I do have... What's it called? The Magic Tape. Oh, I can't think of the name of it. It's in. It's right here in my Marvel Champions box, actually. Is it? Yeah. What is this called? This is... Hugo's Amazing Tape. This is awesome. It's not tape. It's a. It looks like transparent tape, but it's actually strips of clingy plastic that don't stick to anything. The only thing Hugo's tape sticks to is itself. So I have, in some cases, um, used it to wrap a box tight if need be. But mostly, I just make sure the box is stuffed in there tight with other things, so it's just, hey, it's being compressed. That's what I do. That's what I do. Alrighty, and then finally, Vasco says uh, uh, he apparently Vasco had a jam-packed Deception Murder in Hong Kong with the expansion fully sleeved. Oh no, he's jam-packed Deception Murder in Hong. Everything sleeved in the original box without putting 500 cards into baggies, but rather using the original insert. And when I open it, they are everywhere. Let's go back to Marvel Champions. Let me show you how I do Marvel Champions. I have. Everything from Marvel Champions, every expansion released so far in this one box. This is what I do. I life is too short for sleeves. I don't like sleeves. I like holding the cards. Here is um, Thor. He's in a little tiny deck held together by Hugo's tape. Um, you know, here is the Island of Doctor Zola. Uh, the whole thing in a little tiny baggie. This is how I do it, man. Uh, and if you can just let it go and just remind yourself, hey, they're just cards. They don't, you know, they, they don't have to be, you know, they're made for touching. Don't sleeve them away. I used to sleeve. I used to be a hardcore Magic the Gathering player back in Ice Age Fallen Empire's third edition era. And I sleeved the heck out of everything, but I don't think it made me any happier. And I am very, I'm a happy, a, a, a recovering former sleever, which means I can stuff more stuff in my boxes and without the boxes going crazy. All right. Woo! Oh my gosh, folks, we're done because now we are on to Jen's personal gaming questions. Yay! So hang on. We'll be right back with the love of my life, Jen. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Jen is here. Hi, honey pie. Show them you're here. Uh, uh, sorry, it's not. What is that? 37-year-old Jen there in that picture, <laughs> oh, would yeah. you say? Or 37, 38-year-old Jen. It's a slightly more well-aged Jen. Hi, Annie Vi. Oh, is this? That, is there's a camera? Yeah, there Hello. you go. Yep, there you go. Okay. Um, shorter hair. Uh, um, 
Nothing else has changed, though. Nothing Absolutely. <laughs> but Perhaps we, I'm older and wiser. There you go, yes. Um, full of wisdom. And uh, we are going to continue with some gaming stuff. A few people threw some stuff Jen's way. And we'll start with Errol, who uh, wants to say thanks for the show and, and all that. And, uh, alright, I wish I had the reach you do so I could follow in your footsteps. Thank you, Errol. Anyway, so... Arrow finds our views on games and most other things be very similar for the most part and takes our advice on games it's uh, worked for him for the most part. Except Errol uh, thinks he values art and graphic design more than me, I suppose, which is probably a little shallow on his part, but more than, more than um, Errol's tastes are being similar uh, J Errol's wife and Jen's taste <laughs> seem to be similar as well. Boy, I totally butchered Boy, that. You are... Long story short. You need to get. By the way, um, folks, I have not recorded. I have not been recording for however long it's going to be. We're just jumping right in here. I'll do the other game stuff earlier. So this is just a cold, cold start. Anyway, <laughs> and he well, doesn't even have a nice cup of tea to warm him up. No, I, I'm, I'm going to do my best. Uh, long story short, Errol, who points out that he believes his wife and Jen share a lot of similarities, wonders what would be my and Jen's top 10 games that have definitive ends. Now, this is from, I don't remember his last podcast or the podcast before, somebody asked, do you like open-ended yeah, games? Yeah. Or do you like them having a fixed ending? Um, and we both said, you strongly said you prefer fixed endings. I kind of prefer them, but I could go both ways. Yeah. You know, like a certain number of rounds and some foreseeable ending, because uh, we mentioned last month that Jen prefers to see endings in sight, just like Errol's wife, whereas Errol prefers, um, you know... Variable ends. Uh, variable ends. So, uh, honey, quick, make your top ten favorite. Can't do that, but here's what we will do. Here's <laughs> what we will do. I will go to YouTube, um, uh, Rado Gen Top Ten. Let me go on ahead and bring the Chrome browser up for folks who are actually watching rather than listening. And this is as of 2014, Errol, so it's a little out of date. But let's look at Jen's top 10 from back then. Spoilers. Oh, oh no, this was the also. This was the almost made it. it we, we had to go to part two. It was backwards. All right, so Jen's top 10 from four. Now, this will be interesting, too, because this is a, uh, an observation you have made more recently. Um, in 2014, how many of your 10 favorite games have definitive, strict endings? Dungeon Pets certainly does. Dungeon Pets very clearly yeah. spells out exactly how long this game is going to play, as does Agricola. Now, Escape Curse of the Temple doesn't. Uh, no, actually, no. Escape Curse of the Temple has a very, yeah. maybe the most specific <laughs> ending, exactly 10 minutes after yeah. you start, no matter what happens. Uh, Zulkin the Mind Calendar. How, what, what, what triggers the end in Zulkin? I know you're, you're, what are you, you're putting, no, that's a fixed ending. It's, 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 it's going to be a certain number of turns of that dial. The dial goes, I believe the game is over once the dial has done a full 360 degrees. Twice, I think. I forget exactly, but it's a, <coughs> it's another fixed ending. Mm -hmm. Amerigo is not. Amerigo, you love because of the, of the cube tower and the cubes flying all over the place. Mm -hmm. But as I recall, that's got a variable ending based on um, how quickly the islands fill up. A certain number of islands filling up is what triggers the end of that game. So that is one where that's not the case. Bruges. What triggers the end of Bruges? Oh my gosh, it's been so long since I, I played there's, Bruges. There's stuff around the edge. I think maybe a certain amount of 
the walls get filled up or... Well, I mean, you're doing all that stuff, but I don't know if that's the stuff that triggers the end of the game. Or if it, I don't honestly do not remember if Bruges had a fixed ending. I want to say it had something to do with, like, the, the town center. I, boy, I just don't remember about Bruges at all. It's been... And actually, that's not true. We played Hamburg last year. I should remember, but I can't think of it. Pandemic, of course, does not have a fixed ending. Nope. But that's a cooperative game. Uh, Trajan has... We are going to go through a fixed number of events, if I recall correctly. You know, every round, there's uh, there's the events we have to go through. I'm pretty sure that's a fixed number. Hawaii, I think that has an ending once somebody has filled two rows. So that's a variable ending. And then Dominion, of course, is a variable ending as well. Yeah. So still... It looks like at least half of your top 10, and this was you know over half a decade ago, you prefer Fix. So right off the bat, Errol, Dungeon Pets, Agricola, Escape Curse of the Temple, Zolk and the Mayan Calendar, um, maybe Bruges, I honestly don't remember. I think Trajan. But okay, now let's go back and consider, because you actually did a top 24 and we did this, <laughs> and people still regularly ask for Jen to go back and do this again, but it's never going to happen, folks. Let's see. Oh, boy. Uh, confusion. Galaxy Trucker. Galaxy Trucker is a... F no, that's even even that's variable. Wow, that's interesting. I would say most of these are variable ending. Um, As it happens. You know, Glory Romans in a million different ways. Cave is all about... No, Cave, I think, has a fixed amount of time. Fresco is definitely not a fixed amount of time. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, uh, Trois? Oh, oh, no, Trajan. Oh, I, I was saying Trajan before. I was thinking of Trois has those particular events. Does Trajan have a fixed event? Oh, man. Sorry. Errol, we are not at all prepared um, <laughs> to answer this question. But there were a few. Uh, we gave. I think we gave you five. five Jen's top five from, what, seven years ago. Uh, give or take a little bit. Um, but, yeah, I mean... Uh, let's see. If I were to look at mine... And this is this is tricky... I, I mean, I should have done the research ahead of time. If I go to ranked.com and look at mine, uh, Shadowrun Crossfire is not a fixed end. Uh, Gloomhaven is definitely not. Agricola, Agricola is. Yeah. Agricola, yeah, we already talked about it with Jen. Trois, I think Trois has a fixed number of events you have to go through. Burgundy, what triggers the end of Burgundy? It's Isn't it when somebody fills up their world? Oh, man. No, no, no. Burgundy. Burgundy has a very fixed round, too, because you set up those... Uh, there's timers. Yeah, so Castle to Burgundy is another very fixed ending one. Um, Pelepenes has a fixed time frame as well. Keyflower has a fixed time frame. You know exactly when the game is going to end. Roll for the Galaxy does not. It could end whenever. Um, Manhattan Project Energy Empire has a very fixed, specific time frame. Maracaibo doesn't. Dungeon Pets uh, Project Elite is a fixed time frame. Uh, no, Black Angel has variability because you can players can drag it out or try to end it early. Maybe you can for Trois as well. But anyway, there's a handful. Um, and uh, I would say in most cases where it isn't a game that ha where it's a game that has a variable ending rather than a fixed ending, those are probably going to be the exceptions to the rule for Jen. Like because, oh, she really loves that cube tower. Or because... Uh, you know, it's it's one of our it's the game that got us into it, or you know, various sundry things. So there's a handful. Hopefully that helps. Sorry, I should have done more research. But now we must move on to Kevin, who maybe has an easier question. Kevin loves board games. Introduced his wife to games. There have been some hits and misses with her. She prefers lighter games than Kevin. Uh, but one thing she is starting to dislike is she feels like she does not have a shot of winning. Uh, Kevin, uh, tell your wife I know the feeling. And as the one introducing the game and being the teacher, Kevin tends to do research about whether she'd like it, like watching my run-throughs or, you know, rules videos. 
So that means he knows the game better when they sit down to play. Um, the problem is, it's been made worse since you started logging plays. Yes, that was definitely a problem when we started logging plays too, and I could see exactly how much Jen was beating me by. Roughly 65% of the time. Uh, so uh, Kevin's wife is becoming more competitive while at the same time wanting um, to play less. Uh, because she feels she's at a disadvantage. And, um, you know, Kevin loves playing for the joy of games uh, that brings to him and others. But if she's not having fun, you'd rather not play. Kevin, this is like the exact opposite <laughs> of, of a Jensen Mice Pot. So, games are supposed to be fun. What are some things that Kevin could do to help the games be more fun and not so much about winning? Um... Interestingly, she doesn't want me to stop logging the plays because apparently she is very competitive. Well, I mean, I don't know if that rules out the number one obvious thing to do, Kevin. By far, of course, is um, co-op games. I would rather play a co-op game any day of the week. Um, in part because I feel like, one, because, uh, because she's on my side, I have a better <laughs> chance of winning as opposed to when she's against me and I have a better chance of losing. Um, so if you could convince your wife that the joy and fun of gameplay... I mean, I mean, a lot of people are just like vehemently opposed to cooperative. It's not even a game. It's an activity. It's like, no, you're playing against the designer. The designer is making rules and he's just got, you know, event cards or, you know, procedures or whatever that represent what the designer's doing. Just imagine a cooperative game is like a sport. You know, I mean, people don't say, hey, basketball's not a game because, hey, multiple people might be on the same team and win. You know what? You and your wife are on the same team and you can beat the designer. Get competitive against the designer. Get competitive against the system and the world. That's what I suggest. And if you cannot convince her of that, I mean, because she just refuses to accept it, even though cooperative games are very competitive in nature. You're just you. You are you're on a team trying to beat another team. They're like a sport. If that doesn't work, what do you think, Honeyfy? Because I took the easy answer. Oh, well, my initial thought was just when somebody triggers the end of the game, don't total stuff up. Mm -hmm. just... Don't don't even. Oh, that's very unsatisfying. Everybody wants to know how well they did. Everybody wants to know if they've done better. I mean, you're saying literally just walk away. Nobody even knows what their final score is. It's it's it, 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 it that would certainly be a way to do it, but considering she doesn't want him to stop logging plays, I don't think she's going to be satisfied with that. I mean, what kind of? I I, I don't know. I mean, we we obviously Kevin, we're, we're, we're an advantage. We don't know your wife. Um, I can intuit she must be a very competitive person because she wants to see those scores, and that that's you're in a bit of a pickle, sir, because she wants. I mean, and obviously you don't want to start throwing games. I mean, okay, here's the deal. Between you and me, Kevin, if she's not listening to this, I'm not saying you need to throw games, but here's the reality of it. Don't play to win. You, you say you just want to play to have fun. Play um, next time you play some game that you both really like and you think you're going to beat her, uh, be just because of history. Play some far-out strategy that you've always wanted to try. and you've all, I don't even know if this strategy is going to work. Play it to try it. Um, you'll let her just do her best if you are going to win more often than not, and um, you know, let let her focus and strive, and you just try really, really hard to do the far out strategy and see if it'll work. You know, maybe that's going to change things a little bit. I mean, again, I'm not saying throw the game because if she gets a whiff of that, believe me, I don't want Jen to throw the games, even though I I really do get demoralized about the fact that I lose a lot. Um, it's it's odd too 
because the situation Jen and I find ourselves in, I mean, I, I'm very self-defeating and I'm quick to point out the mistakes I made. And Jen's always quick, quick to be very supportive and, oh, honey, don't worry. You'll do better next time. You're actually doing better than you think. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Stop it. <laughs> um, and I always want her to say, yeah, boy, you really shouldn't have done that. That was a bad move. Oh, you see, you see what you've done here? Well, how you've put yourself into this spiral in the future, you should really avoid doing that. Um, because if Jen is winning consistently, she has identified things that I have failed to identify. And I'd rather she not keep that to herself so that maybe I can do better in the future. Now, that's a tricky thing, though. Again, we don't know your wife. Maybe she'll find that to be super annoying. Uh, again, my go-to answer is convince her that co-ops are awesome. Convince yourself if you need to, because co-ops are awesome. They just instantly solve this problem, mm. and they, you do not have to sacrifice your competitive urge. Um, if, 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 you, if you feel like, oh, it's just, it's, just, it's just going through the motions, then play all your co-ops on hard or super difficulty. And I guarantee you, it, that game will smash both of you into the dirt, and maybe that will get her, her competitive juices flowing. Maybe. I don't know. Hmm. I was thinking more along the lines of what I started saying. Okay. <coughs> Before I rudely interrupted you, I apologize. No, no it's not a problem. Um, just, I was trying to think, how could you do that? And I know there are logging programs. Um, when we played with Steve and Betsy, they both log. Yes. Separately on their phones. Mm -hmm. So maybe you, you count up your stuff and you log on your phone and he counts up on, or, you know, vice versa. You count up on your phone, she counts up on her phone, and you just, that's fine. And you don't have to know who won. I guess that's a possibility. Of course, not all games do that. A lot of games, you score as you go. I mean, uh. um, but I mean, yeah, for games where there is that, okay, let's get out the tallying thing. Everybody, how much did you do for this and this and this and this? You're right. Everybody could, I mean, she could just literally tally her own. And if you guys have a pact not to reveal your final scores to each other, she could be competing with herself. Yeah, or a lot of games say if you're at 50, you're good. Or if you're at 70, yeah, you're yeah. great. And mm -hmm. if you're... Yeah. Maybe... I mean, yeah, certainly games have, a lot of times they have, like, if you're playing solo, here's, like, uh, targets you should go yeah. for. But, I mean, honestly, that, that is an interesting idea. Literally, if she'll go for it, just don't reveal your score. And she doesn't reveal her score. And she can just keep her own log. And she could be competing with herself. That's an interesting idea. Again, we don't know her, so I don't know. But hopefully some of that helps, Kevin, because we got to move on to Mario, who um, points out in episode 74, we mentioned how Jen needs a purpose in her gameplay. Mm. She needs a goal in the game. Jen likes to get stuff done. Right. You know what? That's I mean, Maybe that would have been what we should have made more clear, because I think maybe, maybe it was me who said this, and I was a bit misleading. And it leads to Mario's question. Mm. How does Jen needing a purpose, needing a goal work in a Feld game? which are, by and large, point salad games. You know, Trajan, Bonfire, uh, Castle of Burgundy, Forum, uh, Trajanum. They all go a bit everywhere, with multiple little games on their own, almost. How do you, Jen, refute <laughs> this idea based on your favorite um, board game designer? So, I mean, I think maybe that opens up the fact... I mean, I don't remember what was said in episode 74. That's a lifetime ago. Of course, Mario just listened to it, so it's fresh in his mind mm -hmm. a lifetime ago. I probably... I mean, it was probably as simple to say, yeah, you just need a goal. It's not as simple as that, though, I don't think. Um, you, you need to... I mean, as often as not in Feld games, it's you make a goal for yourself. Yeah, that's true. And it's sometimes it's based on what the original cards are or whatever it is that the game has given you a hint Yes, yeah. Some sort of something. Yeah, I mean, based on what your character special power is, based on your starting hand of cards, based on the starting hand of cards you drafted to get, based on the state of the board. The state of the board. Um, I mean, this is something that is definitely necessary for Jen. And that's not giving her a goal, but that's giving her a scenario 
that is unique to this time that we are playing. Yeah. And that she's like, okay, I can see this is these are the toys I've got to play with. My goal is to get the most points possible. How am I going to work with that? So, I mean, every game has a goal of win. Just get the most points. Um, but if a game says, yeah, win, get the most points. But Dan says, here's a whole bunch of stuff. And every single thing is equally valid. Do whatever you want. Go, go, go. That's a sandbox game. Yeah, and, and that's, that's something you will not respond well to. I don't like that. I like to have some inkling or clue. And oftentimes it is, oh, there's more green things than purple things on the board. So I'm going to go for, you know, collecting the green stuff. Yeah, whatever, whatever. whatever that is in whatever game it is. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. But... So, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah it's, uh, it is a self... I mean, obviously there are some games that very specifically say, hey, look, you've got, as part of setup, you've got four secret objective cards. Pick two. And at the end of the game, you'll score one of them. And so you've got that. And that's a very, very clear directive. And yeah. that's great, too. Yeah. But you don't necessarily need that. I mean, you, you, plenty of games, you don't have that. No. Your, your only goal is get as many points as possible in ten rounds or whatever it is. Yep. So it's more about the world has... And, and Feld games do this. Yeah. Because people who feel that... I mean, it's it's weird. I mean, you know, uh, point salad is often thrown around as a pejorative for Feld games. Because it doesn't matter what you do. Because everything gets you points. Anybody who feels that way and plays that way, bring them to me because I will beat them every <laughs> single time. Because there's no such thing. Um, that is such a cursory, high-level um, glance at the reality. You have to look deeper. You have to see, oh, well, this connects with this and this. And if I can get those three things working in concert, that's I, I will ignore everything else in this game. The number of times I've heard people say that, oh, to win Agricola, you have to do well in everything. Bring those people to me. I will beat them every time, completely ignoring half of the game. Not having any cattle or any sheep. Because it's not about, oh, I have to make sure I have, I have to tick all the boxes of the game. No. You look at those cards you have at the beginning of the game, and you make a strategy that you play to. And to Mario's point, you give yourself a goal. You give yourself a checklist of this is what I'm going to try to accomplish this game. Yep. Agreed. All right. Um, I, I am interested, though. Do, do you... Would you... Um, do you... Would you... All thing, other things being equal about the game. Um, you know, assuming the game does everything we just talked about. But would you rather play the game that also says the, hey, by the way, here's three cards. Pick one. That's your secret goal. You would you you so and that is much more like Mario saying that's a goal that is the game saying do this exact thing and you would prefer to have that yeah I think so and but that's gonna I'm gonna still look at the board and see which one of those three cards of course yeah yeah so it just it's already it's working in synchronicity mm -hmm. yep yep so yeah it's it yeah in the case where it is well okay then how about this I I gave I think probably the better way to go hey there's three. And you got to pick one, and you'll make that choice based on the status of what you know at the time. What about, nope, everybody draw one random goal. Well, we have played some of those games recently, actually, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, randomly. Yeah. Um, and then I think you just, you, yeah, you have, if you have one, th there's no reason not to work towards that. But I'm asking, do, would you prefer that, or would you prefer not to have that? Because one could argue that kind of railroads you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, what I'm trying to get to, can a game go too far for you? That like, oh, well, there's really nothing to think about here. This is what I have to do now. I have not experienced that. Okay. So, and maybe if we played games multiple, multiple, multiple times, <laughs> I would I would have a stronger opinion on that. But we don't. Yep. And so oftentimes <clears throat> we're playing it once or twice or three times maybe. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it actually helps me get into the game more to have a direction to go yeah. in. 
Yep, to jumpstart the game. Yep. Okay. Mario then continues. Our next episode, 75, we spoke about not being shy or guilty with others about their love of the board game hobby. As people are, are, I mean, are you ever, is it like a guilty pleasure? I think we had a question like that. Um, Right. Mario agrees, but wanted to make another perspective on the subject. When sharing the hobby with new people, how best to choose a game? How can one realize, once they're already quite a bit into it, the games you're choosing won't be overwhelming for others? Mario deals with this question quite a bit every time um, he thinks about if uh, if somebody's going to ask him about a game. So Mario's already thinking, right, what? okay, if they're into it, what game am I going to show them? Um, the reality is this doesn't come up for us at all because we just play games together and yeah. we're both kind of sold on the idea. We don't need... Um, uh, you know, to ha- somebody to hold our hand. But if you were, I mean, if your sister said, you know, it's you know, the kids are one thing. The kids will play anything. Uh, Jen's niece and nephew, uh, whatever you put down from it, because they're just they're just um, uh, up to play. But if your sister said, oh, there we go, bed. You know what? You know what? Um, germ. That's what she calls yeah. you, uh, and she calls her sister Bub, Becky, and uh, Jen, German Bub. Um, <laughs> all right, this is your chance. What? Convince me I should be playing games yep, like this. Pick a game. I would say, honey, <laughs> <laughs> with your encyclopedic knowledge, <laughs> what do you think is the best game? And I'm in a coma. Did I forget to mention I'm <laughs> oh, also in a coma? Shoot, you're you temporarily. And she, she's just trying to comfort you by saying, "Look, I know you really want to play a game. Wow. What's a good game we can play to take your mind off the fact that your husband is in a coma?" This just got real dark real fast. Wow. Yeah. All right. Um, gosh, then that means I have to teach her the game. Yes. So it would have to be a fairly easy game. Yes. Um, and a really fun one. Hmm. I. Gosh, I don't know. I think. When we've, when we've had people come over before, mm-hmm. or like my parents or mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. we've tried to find games that have a theme that they'll like, yeah. that are not too complicated, and that are essentially open-handed so that you can show them what yes. you're doing with your hand and why you're making the decisions you're making. That Yeah, that last bit, I think, is crucially overlooked so often. There are so many great, wonderful games that people might think are gateway games, and they are not. Because Seven Wonders, trying to teach somebody how to play Seven Wonders with 5,000 icons. And like, okay, I'm looking at my cards. I have to pick one. How am I supposed to pick? And But I'm not supposed to show you my cards because that gives you an unfair advantage. I mean, that's... Yeah. So games where everybody can play open-handed, everybody just has it all out. Um, yeah, yeah, that's hugely important. I mean, but Ticket to Ride, of course, doesn't do that. Ticket to Ride, everybody has a closed hand of cards. Yeah, but that's such an easy game. Mm-hmm. I think that's not yep. a big deal. Jen's phone just beeped at her. She has lost interest in you and your question, Mario. No, I I just answered the question. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And, you know, I mean, they're, they're called gateways for a reason. And I'm, I'm sure you would like to just skip and jump right past them to get to the really fun stuff because you're a hardcore gamer, but you can't. you got to put in the time. Um, you know, Carcassonne is the king of the hill for a reason. Carcassonne has a, a couple funky little rules to teach, but for the most part, it's very easy to teach. Ticket to Ride is very easy to teach. Pandemic is moderately easy to teach. Um, so it's just a question of, you know, have those go-tos and pick the ones that uh, you think will fit their personality the best, really. Okay, I think, I think, I think that was it. Yep, we're, then we're on into personal questions. Oh, wow. So, uh, folks, herein ends the game-related portion of the podcast, which means you might want to get off uh, this train before we head o- 
into personal town. So if this is where we uh, bid farewell, then thanks very much for watching and or listening. Have a very nice day. Send those questions to questions at rotto.com. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye. And otherwise, hang on, folks. We'll be right back with the personal cues. everybody. Okay, personal question and answer starting out with another Jack attack. Although, um, it's I don't th I think we have to retire that term because as Jack says, first, he completely respects our decision to take a break from the heavier topics. And Jack was certainly the origin of most heavy topics. Um, the podcast is actually Jack's favorite uh, thing that I do. And um, as much as he loves games and loves learning about people... What was that? Oh, Jen's phone just rang. It wasn't important. Nope. Okay. Uh, Loves learning about people more, and this Q&A series is unique because of how open that we have always been. So, he, uh, thank you, and, and, and thank you, Jack, for appreciating that, because it has been hard, to be sure. But anyway, Jack's question. With the aim to inspire more questions on topics that we enjoy discussing, as opposed to, like, get all the Ajima <laughs> talking about, yeah. what do we enjoy talking about most? Honey Pie, what do you wish people would ask you for in these questions? What do you want to go on about? Oh, my. Oh, my, says Jen. Um, well, that's the stuff I talk about. Glass, chickens, dogs, tea, eating well, exercising, flowers, crafting, making stuff, creative things. That's ten things. Yep. And you don't want to hear no other questions beside that stuff. No, I mean, there's lots of stuff to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's less of a question of what do you want to talk about and more just what you want to take a break from talking about. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Um, although we'll see how that goes in this very episode. Uh, yeah, I I like pop culture stuff. I love talking about TV shows and movies and uh, um, games, really, when it boils right down to it. I guess I like talking about psychology and things that drive people. I very much enjoy digging into that, although I've never really made a study of it in any kind of professional way. I uh, enjoy evaluating creative effort. I enjoy talking about the intricacies of creative project management, since that's what I did for so long, for 20 years, as a creative director in video game industry. So, I mean, stuff like that. But again, I, I don't know. If somebody wanted to talk about fishing, I, have, I do not enjoy fishing at all. I don't care for fishing. But heck, I could certainly talk about it because actually it happens I have things to say about it. Um, so yeah, I, I just, at this point, you know, with everything that's gone on for the last half year, I'm just trying to, just trying to chillax. And I, mean, I think there are certainly topics that everybody knows. Okay, well, there's nothing chillaxing about this particular topic. And so, but, but thank you for asking, Jack. I really appreciate it. Um, right. And, uh, you know, Star Wars versus Star Trek. That's kind of where I'm at these days. Uh, Jack continues, as we as alluded last month, what word do you hate? It came up because we were both laughing that people hate the word moist. Honey, do you have a word that's like, oh, I can't stand that word. Just, you know, fingers on chalkboard, that particular word. I would say, rather than a word, uh -huh. I, I get impatient when listening to somebody who has not gathered their thoughts. Okay. And uses a lot of filler stuff. You don't mean ums or... Yes, or they just... they. Therefore, whereas? They meander around whatever it is that they're trying to say for so long that I I lose patience and attention. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's 
Do I do that? No, you reinstate things I was, several I was times. Worried. There was a pregnant pause there. <laughs> no, I was just. But, but your problem with me is I repeat myself too much. Yeah. I do repeat myself a lot. Yep. Um. Uh, a word I've never been fond of. It, it's in the gaming parlance is uh, tableau. And there's nothing wrong with that word, but you know, you know, managing your tableau, play cards to your tableau. I wish we had a better term for it. I don't know why that one just gets under my skin for some reason, and moist does not bother me at all. Nah. Um, but tell them about you can't what? do seeds and pods. Uh, yeah, I don't know what the word for that is, but there's a particular psychological quirk that. Um, oh, what is it? It's like the. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, uncomfortable with dots. Is it something like that? Yeah. Uh, trypophobia. A, a trypophobia. A strong physical and emotional reaction whenever they see patterns made of of holes or spots. The bigger the cluster of circles, the more uncomfortable they feel. I totally have that uh, in a in a big big way. It has nothing to do with words, but it is an interesting. Uh, do you have anything like that, honey? Anything just gets under you know? Do I, really, I don't like cockroaches. Nobody who likes cockroaches. Some people do. They do like research on them and live with them and you yeah. know, breed them and stuff. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I don't have a problem with insects in general, but I really don't like cockroaches. All right. Okay. Ugh. Okay. Will wonders. Can I tell the story of how I became a video game developer? Did I have formal training? How does that help when I review board games? And uh, Will is also... Enjoying the, the new R&R &R show with Ruel. Okay. Uh, I was at the University of Washington. My major was scientific and technical communications. I literally am trained to be a technical writer. Uh, my intention was... I mean, I actually, I wanted to be a programmer, but the uh, the math requirements at, at University of Washington were way too high. I was not going to do all this advanced calculus to learn Fortran. It just made no sense. And uh, so I said, okay, well, hey... <clears throat> I can talk to technical people, and I'm a creative writer. How about I just meld that and become a technical writer? And, uh, yeah, I, I could totally do that. I, I could totally write board game manuals, I think. I've got a lot of training in that regard. But while I was doing it, I got a job at Nintendo as a gameplay counselor, which meant my job for eight hours on the shift was talking to people on the phone who were stuck in whatever Nintendo video game they were playing, because this was before the internet. When if people got stuck, they went out and they bought... I mean, it, actually, strategy guides didn't really exist yet either. I mean, they were, they were you know, just kind of barely starting out. So, um, because I ended up doing that job for three or four years, I did, uh, when, when I ultimately was no longer at Nintendo, I had to find another job. And a former gameplay counselor had gotten a job at Asymmetrics, which was a... A startup company from Paul Allen, the other founder of Microsoft. And Asymmetrics is a big thing. They were making a multimedia software kit that allowed people to easily, uh, you know, this is, I think, even before Visual Basic existed, easily create multimedia presentations. And so I got a job doing that because one of the premier things they want to show off, hey, look, here's an edutainment title. You can make uh, educational games. And they're like, well, hey, I know a lot about games. And I had a friend there, so I ended up doing that. And I did just a lot of gopher work and, like, production assistant stuff. And uh, But that didn't lead anywhere, but it was something on my resume. I then ended up going back into doing customer service, because by now I had pretty much given up on college, because I hated it. I hated paying all this money for... Uh, anyway. Um, so I ended up doing tech support for Aldis, and then they got bought out by Adobe, so I did it for Adobe for a while. And then ultimately I ended up getting a tech support job at a little video game company, or 
interactive media company called Hyperbole Studios. And that was a small group of like less than 20 people in the company, and none of them played games, but they all realized, oh, we have to put more game elements in our interactive movies that we're putting on CD-ROM. How about we talk to that kid? The other guy we had for this, he's gone off to work at some other game company. Let's have the kid do it because we just landed X-Files, the um, interactive CD-ROM game. And so that was the first time I actually got involved heavily in actual proper video game design. But it was uh, short-lived because it turned out there was this huge... Um, licensing dispute between Chris Carter, the creator of X-Files, and Fox Television. And for a year, there was no X-Files merchandise anywhere in the world. And so we stopped getting paid, and I had to leave the company. And that would have been my first game design credit. But with that under my belt, I was able to get a junior design position at Eidetic Studios in Oregon. And that was because my time in Nintendo, I had played so many hundreds of games, thousands of games really, and I had spent years talking to people about what they liked and what they didn't like about the games. What made them frustrated, what made them happy. I, I had this encyclopedic knowledge, including a very good knowledge of the old Sonic the Hedgehog clone, Bubsy. Uh, Bubsy Bobcat, and they were making a 3D Bubsy Bobcat. So, because I knew a lot about Bubsy, and I knew a lot about what people liked about games, and I had a little bit of experience, kind of some practical, you know, production assistance experience with these other jobs, in between then, I ended up coming on as a junior designer. And after Bubsy came out and was deemed the worst video game of all time, um, great. The uh, you know not too long after that the 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 head creative designer of the company decided to part ways with the company, and okay well who's who's going to be the lead designer on this thing okay let's give it to the kid and this time when they said let's give the game design to the kid although by this point I was probably what. 26 or 27, I guess, maybe. Uh, you know, for this project, the funding stayed, and we actually shipped Siphon Filter, and so I was in the right place at the right time. I, it was certainly, I mean, people would argue that I'm, you make your own opportunities in this world, and there was certainly a portion of that, but I was also very, very lucky. Um, you know, it was a combination of everything I'd done up to that point. Uh, you know, I did a lot of theater. I did a lot of customer service, talking to people on the phone. I'm very good at very quick, on-my-feet communication. And it turns out that's a very, maybe the most important skill in my career, as basically being a cheerleader and keeping everybody moving in the same direction. And uh, so that's the really quick version of how it happened. No formal training at all. This was this was a decade before full sale or any of what we now know of as you know video game design courses or development schools uh, have popped up. You know th this was way before that because I'm very old. Alrighty. And uh, does my my former history help me when reviewing board games? I think so. A lot of people. Maybe even most people think, oh, Rotto, he's just that shill who just says everything is awesome and doesn't really have a critical bone in his body. I don't believe that's the case. I think people who really do know my show pay attention and realize I go out of my way to try to highlight the things that are truly interesting or unique or creative or genre, if not breaking, certainly genre expanding about every game I talk about. And I actually do spend a fair bit of time critiquing a lot of the games I talk about, saying, and I think a lot of that comes because I spent 20 years thinking critically about what is fun and what is not. And I think that really gives me a unique voice. Now, because I'm implicitly, inherently, unstoppably and unflappably positive <laughs> and upbeat at all times, 
because that again, that was my job for 20 years. I always, no matter what was going on with the project, I had to be the shining light that said, rah, 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 we're doing great. Let's keep moving. Charge. Um, that's, 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 that's a part of me. And, uh, and I bring that to the show and I could certainly, you know, a casual glance. Oh, he's just, oh, he just, what do you know? He said it's, it, it's a great game. He clearly didn't say anything else. Well, that's because you're not paying attention, Rotto hater. I actually go into detail about what makes my, and honestly, I think I have more, um, to say about the actual design facets of games than a lot of my contemporaries. Many people would agree to disagree, but I believe that comes from the fact that I am confident there is nobody working in the board game media sphere who has spent multiple decades on the front lines of trying to make things fun for the most people. That, that was their career. Um, so I think that does give me a unique voice. Um, oh, wow. I just really puffed myself up quite a bit there. You want to bring me back down to Earth, Honey Pie? No, because you're awesome. I do. I've got the second biggest cheerleader in the world cheering me on to be even a better cheerleader. Because you are doing good in the world, and I like what Thank you do. Thank you. All right. Lance has a random question. Have we been to many concerts in our lives? Is this something we do regularly? And if so, have we been to any since, um, uh, since tours have started up again? Lance has tickets to see Band of Horses, Little Baby, Triple Red, and uh, as a vaccine recipient, he's excited to see live music. It's Trippy Red, honey. Trippy Red. Sorry, I don't know any of those bands, Lance. You are much hipper than me. Hey, I had t yeah. we had tickets to go see Brian Setzer. Yes, Brian Setzer, uh, the Brian Setzer Orchestra. Yep. Um, yeah. Right before COVID happened, but actually, it wasn't. He COVID. no, yeah, it was. It was like six months before COVID. Yeah. Um, and but, he canceled because he had a throat problem or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. So that was the last thing we had booked, and that would have been the first thing we had booked for. Uh, 20 years? Um, I have never been to, I think, what most people would consider a concert in my life. The most I've ever been is, oh, look, there's a, here's, here's a hundred people kind of sitting up, standing around in a circle and there's a small little group of people playing. That's about it. That's, that's the extent of my concert going. I have never been to a stadium full of thousands of screaming fans. I, that is a completely foreign and alien concept to me. We did just go, there was a, the, the town we're in is doing some, you know, music in the park, summer type stuff. You know, towns yep. do that all the time. And we have, one of our neighbors was performing at one of them. And we, okay, let's go see that. Yeah. And they did great. But, oh, um, that, you know, that was and, and again, I mean, the audience couldn't have been more than 200 people at the absolute most. And, uh, and it was just everybody and just, some dogs. and some dogs. And it was everybody just sitting in the grass, just kind of chilling and listening to, uh, covers of old seventies music. Um, yeah, it was nice. Yeah. So, but I mean, you used to go to concerts as a younger lady. I have been to Neil Diamond. Oh, yeah, we love you, Neil Diamond. Because I grew up with that, and um, I saw George Michael. George Michael, all right. And I think that's it. Really? Yeah. That was it. You didn't do any in your teenage years or anything like no, that. No, no. Because I think you did George Michael in college, right? Yeah. I'm pretty sure. So no, neither of us are big live music artists. I mean, I don't know. I mean, live music is nice, but. I'm not particularly driven to it. I'm not really driven by music, in all honesty. I mean... You know what I enjoy is just listening to, you know, like, if uh, somebody's playing a cello on a street corner kind of a thing. Sure. That that sort of thing. I, I do enjoy that and sort of the happenstance of it and how it adds something wonderful and magical to my day. All right. So, yeah, Lance, we are not big concert goers, but I hope you enjoy yours. Yeah. And thank you. Trippy Red. Thank you for getting vaccinated. Yes. Um, and doing it responsibly. Okay, Errol says, 
Since we've lived in many places other than America, we seem to be uniquely qualified to, spe to speculate on the following question. Are other countries as bad in regards to racism as America? And if not, why do you think America seems to be worse? Speaking systemically, not uh, just the resurgence because of what's basically happened in America over the last four years. Right. Um, I don't know that we are necessarily... I mean, we lived in England for many, many years. We lived in Malta for many, many years. Speaking systemically, I would say, you know, the insidious thing about systemic racism is if you don't suffer from it, it's invisible to you. Yeah. We, we've gone through pretty much our entire lives blithely unaware of, you know, everything that we have benefited from and uh, everything that the uh, you know you know people who are, are the victims of systemic racism have to suffer through. I mean, I've had you know pe many people of color who are coworkers of mine. I had no idea that their life was any different than mine, whether we were in um, you know America or England or Malta for that matter. And you know, and they didn't make a big deal of it. They just it was just it was just something they just had to deal with in their life that I didn't. And there was nothing in the world that went out of our way to make us aware. And, um, you know, it's... I, honestly, I would say neither are really aware until we got back. Neither are really aware of it on a really deep spiritual level until last year, until the events of 2020. Yeah. So we are not well-suited, I think. No. Um, one thing I will say when we lived in England, yeah. and because of Brexit, yeah. is something that, that triggered this memory, is that a lot of the people who voted to leave the European Union did so because they were concerned about them foreigners those, coming those in. damn foreigners taking our gerbs yep. yeah um, that's true that was a real you saw that a lot in yeah. england and i think that might be a racism thing oh yeah yeah well yeah that's that's just a deep big thing but that is certainly something that politicians you know stoke that racist animosity to basically stay in power because it's just easy politics 101 type stuff yeah i can certainly say in malta malta has a certainly a higher percent, you know, a very high percentage of African refugees, uh, you know, and, and refugees from you know around, you know, all, all around that part of the world. And as I understand it, I never saw it personally, but I understand it. Um, you know, uh, you know, very very dark skinned individuals walking the streets of Malta suffered a lot of you know cultural racism. I don't know how systemic it was, but I mean there there were definitely issues. But heck, I was shocked. The first time, you know, a, a, a friend of mine in Malta, who I really respect, very smart guy, said, oh yeah, you can't trust those uh, Southerners. And like, the people from the south of Malta? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're just, they're just backwards down there. And I'm like, this is like the second smallest country in the world. This entire country is less than a quarter of the size of a, of a decent-sized American city. And this is baked in on this level? That there's a north and south divide in Malta? Oh my God! Wow. Uh, yeah, that was uh, that was shocking to me. Um, and it's, it's just you know, it's it's what he grew up with, and it's it's just we are a, a tribal species. Tribalism, tribalism is what got us, you know, to the top of the food chain. Um, it's it is the drive, that, and it's unfortunately now a it's it's a cultural appendix that if we could just get rid of it because we don't need it anymore. Now it only holds us back. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm sorry to say we are not well suited for that because we we haven't we we haven't lived that life. Yeah, we've been blithely unaware of it, yeah. and we're trying to do better about not having walking through life with blinders on, as we have for most of our lives. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks for the question, Errol. Things got a little heavy, um, but I do appreciate folks that they weren't like really heavy stuff. Again, thank you, Jack, for 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 
for taking it easy on us a little bit. All right, anyway, uh, we're moving on to Paul. Unless you had anything more to say about that, honey pie. No. Okay, Paul um, wonders if we're still looking for things to watch on TV and podcasts, because if so, he'd really like to recommend what? West Wing Weekly. West what? Wing Weekly. What is that? Um, this is not the first time we've had this recommendation on the podcast. This is a podcast that does deep dives on all the issues that surround every episode of West Wing. And at some point, I think two years ago, somebody recommended this to us. Maybe it was you, Paul. And at the time, we said, wow, that sounds fantastic. We have done three full plays in our life of the entirety of the West Wing. I imagine at some point in the future, we will sit down and we will start a fourth play. And this is on the list. And when we start lists, when, whenever the next time that Jen says, oh, okay, I just can't handle anymore. I need, I need Josiah Bartlett. I need a big um, president who's a good guy. Yep, yeah, I, I need Josh Lyman, and I need um, the lady uh, Charlie and and um, and CJ. CJ and um, everybody. I, I need them. I imagine we will be uh, tuning it. We'll probably try and you know Jen consumes them three, four a night. And like no, honey, you can watch one, and then you can't watch the next one until we listen to the uh, the accompanying episode of West Wing Weekly. Uh, believe me, you are not the first person to mention it, Paul. It is on the list of things to do at some point. It's on a bucket list of sorts. All righty. But anyway, question two from Paul. You just scrolled past a whole bunch of oh, stuff. It was, it, was, it was in making an impassioned uh, okay, got it. Uh, you know, pitch for how amazing... And it is. I mean, uh, I, I, I've, I've heard nothing but great things. You are not the first person to pitch it to us. Question two is that when we move again, uh, Paul would like <laughs> oh. to put in a good word um, for the Prestatin Northern Wales. Uh, and then he's got a bullet list of stuff. It's right next to the ocean, oh. miles of coastline, an hour and a half away from a ferry that takes you to Ireland, an uh, hour and a half away from big cities, Liverpool and Manchester, train station, uh, you know, a local artisan community, Ooh. tons of board game groups. Uh, Paul is there, and he's got lots of games. So he... Highly recommend the supermarkets that um, you know. I mean, he talks about everything, delis, all of it, um, and and his gaming group and his collection of nine hundred games are always welcome to come and play. Either way, either way, he just wants us to keep Northern there, Wales hey, in mind. There are cheese shops, cheese shops aplenty, vintage <laughs> furniture shops, wonderful cafes. Cheese shops. He, he says it's a wonderful place to live. His only regret was um, that they didn't move there sooner. And fair enough. Here's one thing you didn't mention in your entire list, Paul. What's the weather like? Hmm? I believe Wales is pretty, pretty, pretty moist. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and things are spelled funny there. They are. Well, I mean, I, I, I mean I'm going to try and hazard a guess as how to pronounce P-R-E-S-T-A-T-Y-N. I think you did good. Preston. Sure, we'll, we'll go with that. Um, but, uh, yeah, we did look at Wales. We looked at Wales quite a bit. Although I have to admit, we mostly looked at Southern Wales, uh, because, you know, it's, it's at the Southern end of, of the UK and it's still much more sunny, much more of the year yeah. than if you get up into the Northern climes. But I did like Northern Wales when we oh, yeah, yeah. saw Snowdonia and stuff. That was beautiful. Yep. We did Snowdonia. We went, we have pictures of ourselves in front of that train station with the crazy long name yeah, and all of that. word in English. I yeah. Think we, we, in, in the oh, ten. it's not even English. It's. We were in England for just over nine years, I think, right? Eight years. Just over eight, eight years. Half, somewhere. somewhere between eight and nine years. And we spent a lot of time on the road. We went all over the place in Scotland and in Wales and in southern England. And actually, interestingly, we did very... Well, I don't think we did anything in northern England. We did a lot in the Midlands. Well, Warwickshire and all of that stuff. Oh yeah, okay, yes, yeah. so we did. Do, we did do the the Peak District. Yep, that's true. Up near Harrogate and York and stuff. Yeah. 
Anyway, so we, we had a great time in Wales. We thought it was absolutely wonderful. And um, one of the things that, that really gave us pause was the weather. Because yeah. uh, Jen would prefer a little bit more sun in her day-to-day. But uh, duly noted, we will redouble our efforts. And although, I, I'm, I'm sure you've heard, I, I'm still pushing for Ireland all the way. Because, uh, Paul, can Wales get us a, a, an EU citizenship? I don't think they can do that either, unfortunately. Mm. And that is something I personally would like. Do uh, you have anything more to say about Wales, honey pie? Northern or Southern? Nope. Or was it Wales? Was it Wales? Yeah. Yeah, Northern Wales. Yep, yep, yep. Um, okay, then. Let's move on to Kevin. Kevin can't remember the episode, but a while back, one of Jen's words of wisdoms was about privilege uh, and people not getting involved in politics yep. and standing on the sidelines. And she mentioned how that had really hit home to her. I mean, it's so powerful, folks. If you haven't seen it, go to twitter.com slash Rado, my Twitter account, it is literally pinned at the top. I personally found that particular quote about, um, you know, uh, you know, the privilege that some of us are lucky enough to carry and, um, you know, what it means for us and other people. Uh, anyway, so you can find it there. But anyway, so Kevin continues. Um, when Jen had mentioned she, uh, she was going to stop standing on the sidelines and start trying to get more involved. How has that gone? Kevin, too, has looked for ways and found it overwhelming at times with so many different levels of involvement and opportunities. Gosh. So that's a big one. Yeah, that is a big one. I, I can certainly say the first thing Jen did is, uh, for the first time in her life, and really this is the main thing you've done, she started paying attention to the news. Uh, you, we now get a daily New York Times, um, a, you know, subscriber thing, you know, you know, with a deep dive on some topic, and then you know, casual things with links to other stuff, and you read that most every day. Yep. And I would say you're a much more miserable and happy person now as a result than you used to be two years ago. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I think I am a bit more angry. Yes. Yes. Um, which is unfortunate. But on the other hand, things are, I feel things are so much better with Biden mm -hmm. that I, you know, I'm hoping that he is doing enough for enough people who have been underserved for so long mm -hmm. that we can turn this tide and we can all become um, Americans and look out for each other again. Um that's my hope. Um, as far as what I have personally done, like have I gone out and volunteered at soup kitchens or something like that? No, I haven't. Mm -hmm. I, I think... We have certainly upped our donations to causes. And in fact, it was after Jen did that that I said, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, I was inspired by that and I started actually using my channel. I mean, if you're watching this on YouTube, over somewhere over on the right side or down below the video, there is a Donate Now button. Um, and I'm happy we've raised several thousand bucks for a wide variety of causes. So that was certainly something. And, you know, and we are more generously donating to causes now than we ever have in the past. And I don't know. I mean, there are plenty of folks who are quick to say, ah, but you don't have skin in the game. You're not actually out there on the streets. And I'm like, no. But you know what? Our money does represent that. Uh, you know, we we've we put in a lot of time and effort to get that money, and now we are putting that money towards causes. That is, I mean, that's the point of money. Uh, we have traded our time and efforts and our life to get this money, and we are now giving this money away. So it's via the transitive property, kind of like we're out there marching <laughs> in the streets, or at least we're supporting people who do. So that is certainly something that we are much more aggressive about than we ever have been before. You know, if you'd asked us five years ago, yeah, we make some charitable donations at the end of the year. Kind of a thing. And that's pretty much all we do. You know, for years, Jim was all about um, heifer.org, um, you know, or whatever. But now we are, we, um, you know, I mean, I've spent a lot of time on a charity watchdogs to make sure I'm recommending good charities and stuff like that to, for people who might hit the donate button and all that. Anything more to add? Um, I guess the thing that I found that 
is piquing a, a passionate interest with me in this is the homeless problem mm -hmm. right now. Oh, yes. And part of that is probably just because every time I drive south... Um, in Portland, Oregon, to, yeah. Well, or even through Vancouver, but definitely once you get in across the river into Portland, there are people that are just living along the sides of the highways. Yeah. And it is so heartbreaking because clearly they would not be there if they had anywhere else to go. So, um, what is this? Gosh, September now. In the spring, I did a lot of research on community housing and some other options that are available to help people get off the street. Mm -hmm. And I don't know quite what happened. I sort of got derailed on that. But I was planning on doing an actual... Um, like glass package sponsorship thing, kind of like they do when you get on Kickstarter or something where I pledge to do X, Y, and Z if you give me X money and then I donate all that money to mm. this community housing mm -hmm, project mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, for homeless people. And I think, I can't remember exactly what happened and I got derailed. There was, there's several programs in this area and in Oregon and there's a couple of them up in Seattle and I think maybe I just got overwhelmed with which one to go with mm. and I haven't made a decision yet. And then time passes and now it's September. Yep. So that maybe that's something I can start at the beginning of the year, which is a good time for starting new things and getting going. Kevin, you've just put a fire under her butt. So there you go. You reignited. <laughs> reignited a fire yeah. under her butt that yeah. she had put there previously. I just, herself. I just really feel like people need dignity mm -hmm. and living along a freeway is, is not it. Yeah. They need security. They need safety. They need, running water and toilets and places to do your laundry. Mm -hmm. Yep. All the things we take for granted. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Another thing about privilege. Yep. Okay. Ben says, uh, in the podcast, we've talked a lot about our various travels and Ben wanted to ask about several places that we've not heard us mention. Ooh. Uh, if we've been, uh, what were some of our favorite sites, activities, etc.? And if you haven't, do you hope to someday? Alaska. Oh, I've Alaska been... is a sore spot oh, in this house. Well, yes, but I'm happy because <laughs> I went and he didn't. He was working too hard. Yep. When was that siphon you, filter? It must have been. Yeah, uh, it must have been in the uh, in the late '90s. You went on a week long Alaska boat tour, or maybe it was two weeks or something like that, it was with a, little a bit more than with that. a friend of yours and their family, and you kind of tagged along. Yeah, they, and to yeah. this day, she'll still say how it was one of the most awesome experiences she's ever had in her life, seeing all the glaciers that are all gone now or are no longer anywhere near as amazing as they were when she saw them back in the. Uh, in the in the late nineties. Yeah. Yeah. That was incredible. Yep. So yes, I I thought Alaska was amazing. And I've never been. Uh, um, uh, we were definitely on a spate of watching uh, you know wilderness of uh, survive in Alaska reality shows for a while though, um, but we seem to have stopped those as well. Costa Rica. Haven't been. We've not done anything. Um, well, we've been to the Cozumel. south of. Yes, I was just gonna say uh, south of central Mexico. That's it. Well, not even central Mexico. We've been to Cancun. Yeah, I mean, is that is that kind of central, no. or is that more northern? Uh, it's definitely northern. Is it okay? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's about as far south as we have gone south of the border is Cancun and Cozumel. Period. Well, we 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 did go on that home theater cruise thing. But that wasn't. Yeah, but that that was that's that was that was that was the Caribbean. Yes, yeah. So we've been to several places in the Caribbean, but yeah, we've not seen anything about central, or uh, we 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 well, only way up. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we've watched TV shows. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Costa Rica and uh, really anything down there is kind of... Belize. Nope. Mm. And it's something we never talked about. Iceland. Uh, I always get Iceland and Greenland mixed up. 
Which one is which? Greenland is the gigantic one. Yeah. Right? That and they were trying, that's the false advertising. They were trying to get people to go to Greenland and ignore Iceland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we haven't been yet. Um, it's beautiful. I'm sure we'd find it absolutely gobsmacking. Yeah. But we just haven't been yet. Norway, we've not done anything in Scandinavia other than we did spend like a long weekend in Denmark. Yep. And that was it. And so, yeah, we have not seen, you know, Norway or Sweden. Um, we've not, we've not those... traveled any fjords. Um, yeah, I want to those cruises up the fjords to see the Alaska or the um, northern northern lights. lights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, northern Spain and the Basque Country. We have been to Madrid. Mm -hmm. Isn't that south though? I believe Madrid is south. Uh, wait, pull up a map. I'll pull up a map. Uh, I'm gonna pull up Bing Maps this time because last time I pulled up Google Maps and it showed everybody watching exactly where we live. Um, and so I'm gonna go to Bing Maps instead. And then uh, for people who are watching, and don't go back and look because I had to I had to blur it all out, which was a pain. So here we are at Bing Maps instead. It shows where we used to live. Microsoft thinks we still live in Malta. <laughs> uh, but I'm sorry, what were, oh, okay, we were looking we're at we were looking at Espana. Yeah. So we have been. Come on. Come on. Oh, Bing Maps, you are failing. Jeez. There we go. Okay. Okay. So oh no, Madrid smack dab in the middle. Yes. So yeah. we've been to Madrid. We've been to Barcelona. We've been to Barcelona. I yeah. love Barcelona. We've been down to Seville. We spent, what, didn't we, we had one of those um, timeshare thingies from my parents' timeshare where, around Malaga. Yeah, I think so. So we spent sort of a week down there along the southern coast. Mm -hmm. um, but that is, we haven't been, we haven't been anywhere. Yeah, that's what he's talking about. Yeah, that, that, that's all. And if, you know, if we hadn't come back to America, it may very well be that by now we would have toured northern Spain. Uh, but it, it, that, that is definitely the long-term goal. Get a camper van, tour all of Europe, you know, yeah. all the highways and byways. But unless we're European citizens, we yeah, can't stay which is why we got to go back months. to, we got to go do our time in, um, in, uh, Ireland. Ireland thank you. Not Northern Ireland. Yeah. Croatia. I, we've never even talked uh, about anything like no, that, have we? Yeah. Or have we? I, I pitched Croatia and that whole, um, Western coast of, the Adriatic. Yeah? I guess it's the eastern coast of the Adriatic. Really? Um, to dead announce. Oh, really? Yeah, that would have been really nice. Yeah, one of the big things we did when we were still living in Europe, um, Jen's parents, who are retired teachers, once a year they would come over, and this was for most of the, almost all the time we were in England and then in Malta, and we'd do some kind of trip with them. Yeah. Uh, you know, every year we would go someplace new. The biggest one was, you know, basically going down to Africa. Yeah, or, that's amazing. And also into Marrakesh, Northern Africa and Southern Africa then. But yeah, so what happened with that? They were just weren't interested or uh, we I just did something just, else that we year? We did something else, yeah. Um, it was a whole thing to, to come up, start in Vienna mm -hmm. and then drive all the way down, uh, down the coast there. That mm -hmm. would have been really cool, but we just, I think, I actually, I think that year we instead did um, the Africa trip. Oh, well, yeah, that was kind of hard to beat. Istanbul. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Montenegro, same thing, which Jen was just talking about. Yep. Turkey. But... We've never talked about Turkey, have we? Well. I mean, we've, we've been to, oh, what? Cyprus. We've been to Cyprus, but sure. that's not really and Turkey. And we've been to Istanbul, which yeah. is Turkey. Um, yeah, kind of, sort of. I want to go to the, um, oh, what are those ponds called? Where they, uh, Cappadocia, Cappadonia. Okay. In Turkey. I would really like to do that. It's, um, Well, anyway, you guys yeah. can't see me pointing at the map. <laughs> yeah. So... You can't see her. You probably can't see the map. Jen's trying to actually just... You know, that space there! It's not really helping. No. 
Uh, we did enjoy Istanbul very much. And we spent a week in Cyprus again yeah, on one it. of those uh, things where my parents had one of those timeshares and you could ex- you could exchange it to yeah. other places. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was a, we did a New Year's in Cyprus. It was very cool. It was that lovely. was very nice, yeah. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm sorry to say, I mean, as much traveling as we've done, more so than probably oh most people in the world, There's there is so still much. so much to see, yeah. so much to do. And uh, we, we want to do it all. Um, and we'll, we'll see what happens in the future. All right, I got to get back to the questions. Okay, so Mario says, have you ever tried to do Route 66? Mm -hmm. Everyone always talks about it's a magical journey through the States. What are your thoughts? Baloney? Well, I think Route 66 goes... Um, Get your kicks east, on Route 66. Yes, it's east to west. Yes, sort of west yeah, exactly. So we were we were on part of it when we did the move from Ben to it's from Oregon to Austin. Texas. Yeah, I'm sure we probably did. But although I don't remember that being a thing. I don't remember. Hey, look, we got look, we're on Route 66. No. We were probably just on it and didn't even give it a second thought. No, we had we had things that we wanted to hit, and I don't think Route 66 was any particular part of that. Yeah, um, I, I think probably you know that the the kind of magical mystique it has comes from an earlier time, definitely in Americana. Uh, Jen's now having me move over to look at, I mean, you have to zoom, we, we don't even see, or there it is, Route 66, I don't even know where it is, Route 10, Route 8, Route 40, we can't even find it on the map, so it can't be that impressive. Well, you can sing a song about it and find if, where it goes through. Yep, that's true. Uh, I, I, maybe that's, maybe it. Maybe it's the song that made the road rather than the road that made the song. Mm-hmm. It could very well be. But in a parallel world, what sport do you think we'd uh, both be interested in or interested on? But I'm sure he means interested in. I mean, you do. You. I mean, you, you like certain. You like figure skating. Yeah, I like gymnastics. I like to watch people do amazing things with their bodies. Hmm. Um. Yeah. I can't really think of anything. It's kind of cool what people are doing these days as far as jumping off of mountains with the squirrel suits on. <laughs> that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, let's give it, Let's talk about team sports. I imagine that's probably what he means. Oh. Team sports. Well, I mean, what Synchronized could... swimming. <laughs> you really up. think you could get into synchronized swimming? I don't know. So you can't imagine yourself getting into any kind of team sport at all. I mean, I can certainly see the appeal of something like American football or, you know, actually proper rest of the world football as well because of all the stats and the strategies and all that, um, you know, that, that are implicit, that are pretty much, oh, look, it's just like a bunch of people moving a ball back and forth from one side of the field to the other. Why is that even remotely interesting? Why is there any drama or excitement about it? I mean, it's, 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 but I, I, I can, I Surfing? can. Surfing? What's that? Surfing? Okay. That's kind of cool. You're in a beautiful place and you're watching people. Yeah, I don't know. Sorry. Yep. Uh, back to football. Yeah, it's 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 so it's we just don't have the gene at all. I mean, but but again, as I've meant that when the question of sports has come up on this podcast before, the thing I always point out is that we both really, really, really get hugely emotionally invested in survivor challenges on the mm. TV show Survivor. We're almost done with the latest season of Australian Survivor that we've been watching over the last few weeks. And oh my gosh, it's just and you know and I understand that that's what people get out of sports. You know, that rush, that, oh my are they going to be able to pull it off? <gasps> oh my god, you know, I mean, you know, mm. gasping and um, stuff like that. So, you know, you know, you know the dramatic turns of events and I get that that's what people get out of regular stuff, but I don't know. I 
I, I guess I'm so emotionally involved in that because I know those are regular people, for the most part, who are trying to win a million dollars and change their lives. Mm-hmm. And the stakes are so meaningful. As opposed to, you know, organized professional sports where, okay, these are all millionaires who are all making millions of dollars to just push a ball from one side of the road to the other. And I just, it, I, I just can't get myself invested the same way. Yeah. So we, we, we cannot envision your parallel world. I, I can't do it. And so I guess we will just move on to Jelly, who starts off by saying, if some of these are too personal, feel free to ignore them. And to which we say, Jelly, have you seen this podcast or heard this podcast before? <laughs> um, bring it. All right. So have you, Richard, ever been in love with someone else other than Jen before or during your relationship with Jen? Oh. Has Jen ever been in love with someone else other than you before or during your relationship? Goodness. Um, hey, uh, breaking news. Jen is the first girl I ever dated. So, no. There you go. Um, Jen is my first and true and only love of my life. Uh, Jen cannot say the same, however. Well, <laughs> um, I think I can say that you are the true love of my life. Th- thank that you. That is absolutely That's good to hear. True. But <laughs> I did certainly date before I met you. Mm-hmm. So, um but love, I mean love. 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 How can we say what it? Are really you saying is? you never told Bob you loved him in high school? <laughs> yes, of course. I did. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. She still loves Bob. She carries a torch <laughs> for Bob. Bob of all people, Bob. It was Bobby. Really, I've never heard you call him Bobby. It was just Bob. I always heard Bob. Mm. Anyway, mm. doesn't anyway. matter. Um. So, there you go. That was before, obviously. All right. Not during. Okay. Yes. Um, right. Next up. Have you, Jen and Richard, ever been physically attracted to someone else during your relationship with each other? Sure. I mean... Of course. There's attractive people all around the world that, you know, pop culture inundates us. In fact, when Friends was on, we had our list of... Oh, sure. Ten. I Jelly, I don't know how old you are, but in the 90s, there was a thing called Everybody Gets Their List, and it was because of an episode of Friends, where I forget who I introduced the idea, probably Ross or somebody. Probably Ross. Probably Ross, because you could say, oh, this this one, per, you know, th- these three celebrities, they're on your list, which is to say, uh, you get a free pass to have sex with them if somehow that should ever come to pass, yep. that they would want to have sex with you and you ran into them in real life, and it would not affect your ongoing relationship because they're, quote, on the list. Yep. And yeah, so that was, that was a pop culture phenomenon. I mean, anything the friends did was a pop culture phenomenon. So of course, Jen and I compared lists at that point. As I recall, on my list... At that point, I remember Cindy Crawford was on my list. I do not remember who else. Probably Lucy Lawless. Probably, probably. Jen remembers my list better than I do, apparently. Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to remember. Do you remember who was on your list? Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves. In the... At that point? I mean, Bill. Bill and Ted was on your list. No, no. Speed. But Speed came after the list, didn't it? All right, I'm going to have to look this up. Uh, When was the list introduced in Friends? I'm doing a quick Google search. All righty, that was 1994. Um, Or no, I can't. You know, that's just the first episode of Friends. All right. The one with the list is the name of the episode. It's the eighth episode of the second season. So that must have been um, 1995. When was Speed? IMDb Speed. Uh, it was 1994. Okay, you said go. Yeah. Uh, Speed era Keanu Reeves was at the top of Jen's yeah, list. And Keanu Reeves top. stayed on Jen's list 
for probably a decade <laughs> until the day we met him in real life at the Los Angeles International Airport. Well, we didn't meet him. We, we did not meet him. We saw him. Yes, we saw him because he was just a regular guy in line um, waiting. I mean, he was not, I mean, it was weird. Uh, it, no, it was getting off the plane, wasn't it? No, it was at, at like the customs. It was at customs. Immigration line yeah. or whatever. And I'm sure he had flown first class, but you know, he was just in the same line as everybody else. He d he was not in some kind of special express nope. line. Nope. And it was one of those roping lines. And you, where it, it took you five minutes to walk, walk, walk. And then you turn around 180 degrees and you walk away from each other. Yep. And so every time we just kept walking towards him and we were like a couple feet away from him. <laughs> and then we'd walk away and then we'd run into him again. He was, and we were 100% certain it was him. Nobody else noticed. He was wearing a baseball cap and glasses, but it was undeniable. It was 100% yeah. him. But he was totally scruffy. He was very scruffy. He'd gone into full-on, you know, this was pre-John Wick, of course, but he was full-on John Wick Keanu Reeves. And uh, you were so shocked um, how uh, how his skin yeah, wasn't, you know, like statuesque like he was in the movies. You know, he had like regular real person skin. Yeah, with, with pores and, and, and Exactly. Yeah. And, and it was, um, so yeah. Uh, so yeah, I guess Cindy Crawford and Keanu Reeves. There you go. <laughs> um, all right. Which pretty much tell you what our ages are, I guess. <laughs> Alrighty, um, if you would go to the grocery store and see an amazing-looking girl, would you look for a split second longer at that girl? I guess if she's amazing, I, I assume you would as well. Probably. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that's just human nature. Beauty is beauty. Yeah. Uh, do you have a lot of friends that you see occasionally? Okay, so we're out of. The, I guess those have been the tough questions. Okay. <laughs> um, like if you've been married as long as us, those are not tough questions anymore, <laughs> um, basically. Do you have a lot of friends that you see occasionally? Are those usually also board game friends? Are there those people you have a nice evening with, uh, not even considering the option of playing a game together? Jen has friends outside of the relationship. Mm. Jen has very. Uh, Jen has always, wherever we are in the world, tried to cultivate strong friendships with uh, with women. Yep. And then uh, I think all those friendships have absolutely nothing to do with board games, right? Correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I have never done so. I, uh, uh, you know, I, in high school, I was a very loud, gregarious, outgoing personality because I kind of got pigeonholed into this role. And when I went to college, University of Washington, for like the first quarter of my first year of college, I kept that persona going just because it kind of was inertia at that point. And I eventually realized, oh, I don't have to keep doing this anymore. The, what I call the Rado persona now. I can just sh shut up and sit in a corner and avoid eye contact, which is my now, and wear headphones and keep my head down and keep my hoodie up and just avoid all people everywhere, which is my natural predisposition. But, unbeknownst to me, in that very, very tiny window <laughs> before I reverted to my true self, I met Jen and gave her the full on Rado treatment. And she said, oh. I like that. That's uh, there's something interesting about that guy, and uh, and she made things happen. Yep. Let's and just say. you were scruffy even back then. I've been scruffy my whole life. Yep. Um. All right. All righty. Uh. So yes, Jen. Uh, although I've never you would you never. I mean, you haven't had a lot of friends since high school, really. I mean, you were a popular girl. You were a cheerleader. Um, so you had a bunch of friends. I did not have a bunch of friends in high school either. I have never done so. I've had a bunch of coworkers who I guess I consider friends, but you know, it's not like I ever really sought doing stuff with them outside of work or anything like that. Mm. I, I have, I've, I've had lots of work friends and I really cherish my relationship with a lot of them. But, uh, you know, I, it's, it's very, very rarely gone any deeper than that. Um, 
I have one friend in my life right now, and that's only because he wormed his way in <laughs> and just would not go away. And, you know, Jen knows for years, like, oh, God, it's this guy again. Like, okay. And eventually, okay, I guess we're friends now. Fine. Okay, fine. Um, but yeah, oh, I mean, Jen, Jen, Jen seeks out, seeks out, I've told him this, uh, Jen seeks out friendships and, but you, again, you don't really cultivate or maintain a lot. You, no. You're just looking for two or yeah. one or two. Really. I, I only need a few very good friends. Yep. Okay. Um, and yeah, I mean, and in both cases, I mean, board games are not really the, the unifying thing. Uh, do you have any board game designers or artists that you consider to be friends that you would occasionally, uh, send messages with? No, not really. I mean, I've certainly met plenty of board game, uh, mostly designers. I haven't met very many artists. Uh, who have I? I really, uh, like a couple of years ago, we, Jen had, you know, for the since we've been back in America, we've gone to several conventions, you know, mostly Dice Tower West and Board Game Geek. And, um, the, you know, there have been, there have been, I mean, you know, that's really the first time I've ever had more than just a couple of minutes to talk to somebody. So I've had some nice long chats. Probably of the entire board game industry, the uh, person I have spent the most time talking to that is, you know, a game developer, not a media person like me, where we're just talking about media stuff, is uh, Ryan Lockett of Red Raven Games, because he had a booth across from ours. And I sat down, I, I spent a long time playing an early prototype of Sleeping Gods, giving him tons of feedback that made it into the game. And, um, you know, we had, we, I think we had a really good connection, a really good chat. That's as close, though. And it's not like we've kept up other than to say, hey, interested in covering this game. So I, I just don't cultivate relationships that way. I never have. Um, like I said, Jen got in. She slipped in through the bathroom window, protected by a silver spoon, and now she sucks her thumb and wonders on the banks of her own lagoon. All righty. That's a, that's a Beatles quote. Jen is just really grimacing. What? I don't know what any of What that. did you just say? I don't know what it means either. on the banks of a lagoon? She, she, she came in through the bathroom window, protected by a silver spoon, and now she sucks her thumb and wonders on the banks of her own lagoon. Didn't anybody tell her? Didn't anybody see? Sunday's on the phone to Monday. Tuesday's on the phone to me. Oh, yeah. She said she'd always been a dancer. No, nothing? No, I know the song. Yeah. But uh, they were probably high. I imagine so. <laughs> so yes, probably. I don't think it's supposed to make sense. It, it rhymes <laughs> and it kind of flows. I, I'm sure there are many academics who have spent uh, a long time studying them. But no, I, they're just a bunch of lyrics I know. Uh, do you? Yeah. Uh, to the earlier question about music, the Beatles is really the only music I've ever heavily gotten into. And that was in high school. Everybody gets into music heavy in high school. And, um, and then that becomes the defining music for them for the rest of their lives. And for me, it was the Beatles. Uh, do you have any... All right. Okay. So that was it from Jelly. All right. Vasco says, Jen... Do you name all your chickens? Yep. Do you have a favorite amongst them? No. If so, who is your favorite and why? And yes, you totally have favorites. I can't you have to a favorite. One, they're not here. <laughs> and two, even if they were, they would have no idea you're talking about them because they have no idea what their names are. So yes, you have a favorite. Who is your favorite? I like Sally. Why do you like Sally? Oh, she just balks at me in a certain way. And she likes to <laughs> hang out with me. Wherever I am, she'll come say hi. Mm -hmm. yeah. Is she the one with the weird feet? Yeah. Okay. Yep. She has an extra toe. Yes. And oh, freaky. feathers on her feet. Freakish. A freakish, uh, freakish hand if ever you saw one. That's Sally. All yep. right. Sally is the favorite. And we just got a new chick, uh, Dominant Copper, who has feathers on her feet, too. So. Oh. So know. Sally's on the way out? I don't know. What's we'll the see. name of the new chick? Copper. Copper might be replacing Sally. 
All right. From Jason. Have you ever heard of regenerative farming? Um, or do you know anything about it? Sacred Cow documentary touches upon it. Oh. Um, I, I know it exists. I know the basic idea, and I'm certainly supportive of it. I think probably... Uh, you know who Alan Savoy is, right? I mean, I assume, Jason, you know who Alan Savoy is. The uh, Remember he did that TED Talk about... Oh, about how important it is to have... About how, 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 we, how we can repurpose how we raise cattle. Yeah. And try to uh, get them back into the natural ecosystem that was literally, um, you know, the, the ecosystem as a whole evolved over millennia to have animals. them having hooved animals yeah. being a central part of prairie land grazing. Uh, yeah, and all of that, and how we've completely destroyed all it. of that, yep. and how he is a big. And I mean, I, I saw that TED talk and said, "Wow, this makes so much sense." And I subscribe to his YouTube channel, and mm. uh, whenever he puts up a new video, which is like maybe a couple times a year, I, I watch it and said, "Yep, this still sounds right. This still sounds like something we should be doing." Um, and, I mean, but there's lots of stuff. It's all about, you know, carbon, you know, uh, re sequestration and, um, you know, rotating crops and all that stuff. So yes, yeah. it's great. Now in the long run, it doesn't matter because eventually the true thing that will change humanity once and for all and truly usher in a perfect utopian world is cultured meat, you know, and when that becomes a thing, and, um, you know, real meat becomes a super-duper expensive luxury that only the ultra-rich can afford. And we all laugh at them because they're stupid, because it tastes exactly the same. And there's no reason to go for the real thing and do all this barbaric stuff. And so meat can literally be grown in Petri dishes anywhere, deployed anywhere in the world, um, so that no one will ever have to go hungry again. I mean, you know, it's going to take 100 years to get there, but that is the inevitable future. Uh, then, you know, I mean, but, but yeah, uh, regenerative farming and whatnot is a great stopgap in the meantime. Definitely. Do you have anything to say on this topic, honey pie? Um, I would have to actually Google regenerative farming, but I know all sorts of other kinds of farming things like hugel culture and... Hugel culture? Yeah. What's hugel culture? Oh, it's, um, basically you build a big berm, um, out of logs. Berm? Sticks and... What's a berm? A berm is a big hill. Hill. Yep. All right, I know. And what then you is. plant stuff in there, and as the hill decomposes, basically it fertilizes your crops, and you can grow stuff in there. So it's and it's good water-wise. There's there's a whole bunch of things like that. So I'm not sure exactly. I, I, what I would imagine by... what you just described falls under the general aegis of regenerative, regenerative farming. Yes. Okay, so that's just the catch-all umbrella term. Yeah, for okay. you know all the different ways that we can get rid of our modern um, factory farming approach that is oh, killing the earth. Definitely, basically. I, yeah, I yeah. am totally in favor of that. Yep. So, um, I think that was it. And so now, um, even though Henrik does not ask anymore, the last thing Henrik asked was, mm, yes. could you please keep doing the Jen Words of Wisdom? Jen has an actual physical book in front of her, the comfort book, by Matt Haig, and Jen has marked a page. Normally, she's just got Instagram or um, Pinterest posts, uh, you know, stuff that she saw that she really likes and she just saves for later. But, you know, this is page 158. Well, okay, so I, oh, wait, I'm, no, trying, she's got, oh. I'm trying to decide about two. There's the importance of weird thinking mm -hmm. or other people are other people. Okay. So I, I could read both or I could read one of them. Or I, I, I will. Is that that's from the library? So you won't have it next month, will you? Oh, it's a good book though. Oh I've my, I've been enjoying it. So, okay. Um, which one would you rather hear? The weirdness or people being people? The importance of weird thinking or other people are other people. Oh, if only I could do a poll for the for the audience. This would be a great poll. Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm drawn to the weirdness myself. Of course. Sorry, folks. Sorry, people are people. People. 
<laughs> other people are other people. So this was from page 158. No, this is 148. 148. Okay. I can't really see it from here. That's all right. It's called The Importance of Weird Thinking. It's good to be weird. It's good to be eccentric. It is good to be separate from the crowd. The philosopher John Stuart Mill thought it was almost a civic duty to be eccentric, to break the tyranny of conformity and custom. But even if we don't feel outwardly eccentric, we all have eccentric parts. Thoughts that crop up on the peripheries of our thinking. Random sparks we can set alight. Thoughts that offer the other point of view or the other side of a political argument. Thoughts that didn't quite fit in with our other thoughts. Tastes that go against your other tastes. And as we grow older, it is good to keep tending to those unconventional parts of ourselves. The thoughts that buck the trend. Because those are the parts that will keep us new and capable of surprise. They will stop us becoming a cover version of ourselves. They will help us become new songs. Wow. Okay. That's pretty good. Was the, other, was the other one that long as well? Yeah. Okay. Well, folks, maybe you'll hear about uh, the people, people next month. Jen might just snap a picture with her phone so she can go back to reading them off her phone like she normally does. Ah. Yeah, the problem is, um, you know, for the last few, I've been putting them on the screen because they were from Pinterest and whatnot. But the importance of weird thinking, there you go, yep. from the book, Matt The Hay. Comfort Book, from author Matt Haig, New York Times bestselling author of The Midnight Library. Uh, Jamila, uh, oh, Jamila Jamil says, I can't describe how much this work means to me, the king of empathy. So Jen apparently strongly recommends the comfort book. I like it. I've All been right. enjoying it. Is, is that the whole book? It's just like, um, it just, looks like, yeah, yeah each one is a page with an off, of... random, yeah. Yeah. Deep thoughts by Jack Handy, but <laughs> serious instead of silly. <laughs> yep. Cool. All right, folks, that was it. We are done. Oh wait, no, we're not done. Uh, we're what? done, but as always, send more questions at questions at raw.com. But uh, if you'd like to get out now, you can before we look at dog pictures. Ah, dog pictures. That's right, the proper way to end this. We have thing. now decided to move this to the end so people don't have to hear it. Although, sadly, Honey Pie, there was only one entry with dog pictures. Well, that's so, the winner then. Let's, uh, let's jump to it. That's them. my favorite. There you go. Your favorite are Charlie and Sky <laughs> snoozing. I love a schnoz shot. Yep, a schnoz shot and a beagle ball. Or oh. not a beagle ball, a, uh, a labrador. A ball. And a wonderful He's schnoz shot. Labradorable. Labradorable. All right. Oh, that's lovely. Um, yep, yep, yep. Thank you as always. And um, Jen loves those dog pictures, folks. Um, so, questions to questions Include dog pictures. They would only appear here at the end, so other people don't have to listen to Jen going, Oh, look so cute. Yep. I want to boop the nose. Boop. boop. And now, folks, uh, we can say thanks for watching. Talk to you later. So long. Bye. Bye. Bye.